0: Whenever there is a disaster, the normal reaction is something has to be done to stop this from ever happening again. Again, the question is, well, maybe we should just stay the course because this is the right number of disasters to have, which horrifies people. But it's like, look, like we shouldn't have earthquake codes so strict that no building ever collapses no matter what, because the effect on housing costs would be astronomical. Right. So why don't you tell me what is the correct number of houses to collapse in earthquakes? And then we're only going to cover it in the media if we exceed that number. You just imagine the people's heads exploding like, no, we have to cover (laughs) every single one so that we can have the proper reaction. This proper reaction is what makes housing costs too high.
1: Hey, listeners, Rob here, Head of Research at 8,000 Hours. The idea that if you want to be a better person, you should stop reading the news will strike some people as pretty much nuts and other people as pretty much obvious. In today's episode, repeat guest Brian Kaplan and I make a full-throated defence of the idea that following the news is neither truly enjoyable nor particularly helpful if you want to understand the world or make it a better place, Um, organising a conversation around the book Stop Reading the News by Rolf DeBelli. I've put my time where my mouth is on this one and have mostly quit the news myself, uh, and I hope that we inspire some of you to think about doing the same. Second, we've had many episodes over the last year on ways that development of artificial general intelligence could be super influential or accidentally go wrong. So I thought it was time to give over the mic to someone like Brian, who is pretty skeptical that AI is going to lead to extreme rapid changes of any kind, or that there's a meaningful chance of it going terribly. My primary goal was to better understand the underlying beliefs that are causing Brian to see things so differently from me, uh, something which I think I really do understand much better now. And having identified some of the key cruxes of disagreement between us, I'll be excited to really interrogate those points next time we speak. Fingers crossed. And finally, Brian has for many years argued that rational irrationality or rational ignorance on the part of voters leads to many very harmful policy decisions. So I ask him to explain and justify why he thinks that and whether, if that's right, it suggests that there are some really high value opportunities to get better policy outcomes that are going missed. Without further ado, I bring you the rambunctious Brian Kaplan. Today, I'm again speaking with Brian Kaplan. Brian is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of a number of books. In episode 32, economist Brian Kaplan thinks education is mostly pointless showing off. Uh, We test the strength of his case. We talked about his book, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. And in episode 126, uh, Brian Kaplan on whether lazy parenting is okay, we spoke about selfish reasons to have more kids, why being a great parent is less work and more fun than you think, as well as his collection of essays uh, titled Labor Economics Versus the World. Later, we're going to chat about Brian's most recent compilation of essays, which is available on Amazon now, entitled Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Irrationality. Agree or disagree with him, Brian is someone who will always give you the benefit of his candid opinions. So, so thanks for coming back on the podcast, Brian.
0: <laughs> Delighted to be here, Rob.
1: I hope to talk about your take on how AI advances might play out positively or negatively and why you might have a moral duty to stop reading the news. But first, in our last interview, we were talking about how large the returns are to more intensive helicopter-style parenting. And at one point, you said, uh, let Wiblins blanket the earth. That's my motto. We need lots of wibblins, which is naturally uh, very, very one of the more flattering things people have said. <laughs> to me. Uh, and at that point, I can share some good news, which is that my wife is uh, is now pregnant. So All right. outstanding. we have at least, uh, at least half of one Wibblin coming up. All right. That sounds great. How many people have now
0: said that your book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, uh, was causally involved in them deciding to have kids? Some hundreds. I mean, I've actually done Twitter polls where I just say, how many kids have I talked you into having, figuring obviously not everybody that I've convinced is reading that particular tweet. And that comes out to hundreds. Now you may say, well, some of those people are exaggerating. Seems like an odd thing to exaggerate, actually. But in any case, I think that is a reasonable lower bound. I mean, how many people could actually be reading every single tweet? So I wouldn't be surprised if it's over a thousand people or uh, exist because of the book.
1: So yeah, I've, I've been trying to uh, figure out whether your book uh, caused me to have kids or not. It's, it's a slightly complicated question because um, I, well, I I mean I read the book a while ago and I like probably already somewhat agreed with the general idea that helicopter parenting was was over the top. Having kids or not has been a kind of close call for me. So it, it is like there's a reasonable chance that the book like put me over the edge, uh, maybe like a 10 or 20% chance.
0: All right. So point, point 0.15 Wiblin's. Or if I push you over the edge and then once you have one, it's like, well, we don't want this kid to be an only child and you got two. and It's like, well, <laughs> so, you yeah, could create a whole chain reaction.
1: Yeah, um, I'll, I'll let you know how we go. But um, let's push on to a topic that we're both very passionate about, which is whether it's good to read the news or not. I have to admit, Brian, you were actually the, the second person on my list to talk about this because I was particularly inspired by a book written by the author Rolf Debelli called Stop Reading the News, a manifesto mm-hmm. for a happier, calmer and wiser life. Stop Reading the News, it's it's a super entertaining read. Uh, it's, it's it's a fierce book. Uh, and I got through the audio book in just 90 minutes. So I can recommend uh, checking it out, uh, even if you're, if you're stretched for time. But it turns out uh, Rolf doesn't do interviews at all. So uh, you were the second person on my, on my list. Mm-hmm. So two out two out of eight billions, is not, not too bad. Um, a little bit of background on this section is that after hearing the arguments Rolf makes in that book, my wife and I decided to stop reading the news basically called Turkey uh, Christmas last year mm-hmm. uh, because we thought it was kind of making us sad and anxious without actually doing that much to help us make the world a better place or even understand the world. I'm kind of naturally uh, a news donkey, And I think Before that, I was spending maybe one to three hours reading the news on average a day, Um, and that's probably about what I've been doing for most of my adult life. Since then, I guess we've we've mostly stuck uh, to it, and I'd say my news consumption is down about 90%. Uh-huh. Some stuff still gets through in the comedy we watch. Uh, I listen to like a Spanish <laughs> uh, Spanish language learning program, which has news in it sometimes. And people bring it up in conversation in person, which is which is fine. Uh, I guess I have also, you know, sometimes for preparing for the show, I, I check out specific uh, news things that I'm actively looking for, more, more more technical stuff, and I don't try to avoid that. But basically, I haven't checked the homepage at the Financial Times or the New York Times or the Atlantic or the New Yorker or the BBC or the newsfeed on Twitter or the newsfeed on Reddit or anything like that for about for about 10 months. It's, it's all been blocked. And... And I really do think I'm I'm happier and more productive than I used to be. Uh, Certainly, I'm not as anxious and my moods are not as volatile as they were before. I was spending 10% of my waking life reading the news. That is a lot of time. It really it's not enough to say that there is some benefit to that. You really want to say this is providing 10% of the value in your life. <laughs> it has to be actually providing a significant amount of, of goodness. And it just is so unclear that it's doing that. It's, it's unclear whether it's positive or negative, uh, let alone providing 10% of, of my well being.
0: You know, by the way, Rob, it's fascinating that you and your wife quit together. I think this is actually very similar to a couple disaffiliating from a church. If only one does it, then it actually causes a lot of conflict, and even if it isn't a direct source of conflict, it's just a rift because one person is still part of a of a notional social group and the other one isn't. So it's a tax on the relationship. Uh, uh, so to do it together, I'm, I'm really impressed that you were able to pull that off. It is sort of a thing where you are – simultaneously getting the benefits of switching of of not just individually. I'm not doing it, but uh, uh, together we're not doing it. So now we can together go and find something else to do instead.
1: Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's indicative of the fact that we got married because we think somewhat similarly about about issues. So we both listen- we both heard this book and we're like, this is just right. <laughs> this is like this is overwhelmingly right. So why don't why don't we act on it? Uh, it would have been so much harder if it was only one of us because then the other one would want to talk about the things that they're reading, right? Uh, and they'd be kind of maybe they'd be a bit dismayed that their partner takes so little interest in the world or something like that. Now. I think that as a result of reading less news, I do read more books, uh, and I ha- and I do listen to more lecture series. Uh, there's there's a this company, the Great Courses, which produces fantastic lecture series, uh, and I've just been just been churning through them this year. But I would say about half of the time that we've freed up, I just play computer games with my wife. <laughs> but i honestly think that is a much better use of time (laughs) because it's good well firstly it's just fun so i come away from playing computer games with my wife feeling refreshed i'm like excited and happy i've had a good time rather than feeling actively worse rather than feeling drained because i was reading about something horrible and it's good for our relationship and it's just inherently enjoyable during the time so i'd say even playing computer games is maybe a more respectable
0: (laughs) yeah and getting ready for baby the, the family that plays together stays together
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I think we're sticking with it. And my hope is that some listeners to this episode might reflect on whether they want to make a, a similar change in their life or things considered. So with that out of the way, uh, what is your overall
0: take on news, Brian? I'm not as extreme as you actually, but uh, you're making me feel guilty like maybe I should be. In terms of, uh, you know, there's sort of two different takes you or two, two different angles, you know? So one is what is the actual effect of following the news on the individual, on the life of the individual that's doing it? And I think it's just hard to imagine that it's not just what you're saying. You just imagine doing a time diary approach where you are talking about and rec- what you're doing and what your mood is at every minute of the day. Obviously, when people are watching the news, normally stuff on the news is quite horrifying and they're getting upset and agitated. If You just think about people that are angry about things every day. Normally, they don't have enough stuff going on in their, in their personal lives to actually get that angry. And so what they are angry about is stuff that they are hearing about on the news. So that, what I would just say, is the main selfish case. And then to say, well, but what if I fail to learn something that's really important for me personally? So yeah, well, what are the odds of that? That hardly ever happens. And especially if it were going to be that important, you would hear about it almost certainly in a number of other ways. And therefore, it wouldn't matter. I remember, actually, my family was driving down from D.C. to Florida on the very day that the George Floyd riots were hitting the country. If we were totally you – know, so I had heard something about it from Facebook. But if we were just totally not following the news, even so, since I was going to be visiting some friends, I would have gotten emails from them. I did get emails from them saying, don't come to Charleston, South Carolina. It's a war zone here. Uh, and therefore it would have been fine. (laughs) Uh, So it really just very rarely happens that not following the news would actually wind up having any harm to you personally because you were uninformed. There are the psychological gains from not having the negativity because as we know, news veers very negative. Now in terms of how can you become an informed and enlightened person, that's the other perspective. And this is one where, My first reaction is, well, read it in history books. If it's that important, it'll be in history books. Read that. Uh, When I do want to get up to date with something that's been going on, I find it's very helpful just to read Wikipedia. It's a lot less emotionally affecting because they're aggregating a whole lot of information. It's not this sense of, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, good. Oh, no. Uh, So in that way, you wind up getting not only a less of an emotional roller coaster but you also get a better picture of what's really going on when you read the wikipedia article on an event because there's filtration there's curation stuff that turns out to be not actually true and important generally doesn't appear on the wikipedia article and in that way you can still be highly informed for example you know with all due modesty, I'll say I think I'm at 99.9% on Israel and Palestine for Americans anyway. You say, well, for an American. <laughs> but still, I think that's way beyond what most people follow the news is, but that's because I've just read a number of books on it, as well as some really good graphic novels, honestly, some great graphic novels on this topic. Um, mm. So I, but in terms of knowing what's going on, I think I'm really quite good, but without that sense of dread and horror and outrage that people who are. Watching the news minute to minute actually experience.
1: Yeah, so there's two two different threads there. One is does it help you make decisions in your personal life? Does it provide personal benefit? And then there's another question it's like does it help you to understand the world? So to have a better idea about what's going to happen in the big picture and maybe how you could try to improve it. On the first one, so that's that's the first argument in the stop reading the news book. It's just news is irrelevant. And uh, Rolf suggests the typical typical educated person who follows the news might read twenty thousand news articles or twenty thousand headlines in a year. How many of those did you act on? Did you do a thing on? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if you just think about the number of that bad, huh? The number of things you can get checking checking uh, the homepage uh, like every couple of hours could add up. And then the question is, you know, out of all of those, how many concrete decisions did you make differently in your life? And the answer, like th- there, are, there are a few, uh, uh, you mentioned yeah, uh, traveling when there were riots going on uh Rolf mentions that he went to the airport once when um the airport was closed because of a because of because of a volcano. Uh, I think there was a, sometimes that was it was practically useful to follow the news around around covid because uh, that was going to affect the plans that you might make. But it's kind of the exceptions that prove the rule like you really have to
0: stretch to think what what did I do differently? Yeah, I mean even on covid normally when I wanted information I'd read stat news which was which is not news in any normal sense it's actually giving you statistical information.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, or you could go to our world in data or something like that if you wanted to actually see what's going on.
0: Yeah, I was doing that a lot too.
1: Okay. And then there's the other thread about uh, you know, under- understanding the world in some more broad sense. And perhaps you value understanding the world uh, for its own sake or you, or you think it's going to be useful. And on that, I-, I think you probably have the view that not only is news not helping here, but uh, it's actively harming you, that it might well cause you to have a less accurate model of the world. Yeah. Could you give some reasons for
0: that? Right. Probably the very best way of understanding this is a thought experiment from Michael Humer, where he says, imagine there's a school and all the school does all day, every day is tell the students true negative things about Jews. So from morning till night, like, and then there was a guy, you know, Abraham Shlomo, who mugged a woman in 1872 on the corner of Hamburg. And we just think that you ought to know all about Abraham. And every day, it's like, and then another thing. Then there was a massacre committed by Jews in the year 23 BC. And there's on and on. And then someone says, this is very biased and misleading. And they say, what do you mean? Every word is true. It's all fact checked. And you look at it, it is all fact checked. However, the point of it is to create an overwhelmingly false picture that. All things that the Jews are terrible, and basically that you know it's really by you know, the way that they're presenting it, they're showing you all Jews are terrible and all terrible things are Jewish. And if they said, "Well, we never said that," you the the implication, the insinuation was overwhelming. And this is what I say is really going on with the news. It's not so much that it's fake news or misinformation, but rather that. The stuff is generally, not always, but generally true as far as it goes with this question, why are you telling me this stuff? Why is it that I need to know about every plane crash unless your point is that planes are really dangerous and you shouldn't fly? Why is it that you tell me about every terrorist attack unless your point is that terrorism is one of the most important causes of death in the world? So that's what I'd say is really going on. You know, yes, sometimes the information is just not even true. It's not even real information. But the main thing is they're just giving this overwhelmingly skewed view of the world. And if you're saying, well, what's the skew exactly? I mean, the obvious one, which I will definitely defend, is an overwhelming left-wing view of the world. Basically, the woke Western view is what you get out of almost all media, even if you're reading media in other countries, it's quite common the journalists in those other countries are the most westernized in the sense of they are part of the woke cult. So there's that, and that's the one that people complain about the most, and I think those complaints are reasonable. But long before anyone was using the word woke, there's just a bunch of other big problems with the news, the the negativity bias, bad, 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 sad, 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 angry, angry, angry. This is the way that the stories are, even when the ideological agenda isn't really there, or at least it was a different ideological agenda. So that's a major problem. And then another big part of it is just sheer innumeracy. It's not like every day the news tells you, death continues to kill. We have not yet solved the problem of aging. That's almost never on the news. Instead, it is these very tiny but vivid risks, terrorism, plane crashes. Now, one thing that I often do instead of news when other people be doing it is reading Wikipedia And I do like this, This Day in History feature Wikipedia, and yet about 20% of what are otherwise actually important and interesting historical events are terrorism and plane crashes and train crashes too. Now, here's the (laughs) thing. You might say, all right, look, terrorism, we know it's not important as a direct cause of death, but it's important because it drives other policies that are important. It's like, yeah, well, maybe because you guys are always telling everybody that it's really important. But the plane crashes ones, there's just no conceivable justification (laughs) for it because plane crashes do not cause a bunch of other horrible things. They are quite self-contained. I mean, actually, air travel is so regulated at this point that when there's a plane crash, there really is not much of a push towards further regulation. The last time I can even remember an air disaster leading to a a call for more regulation was when John F. Kennedy Jr. died in a light plane crash, and then there were some peeps about cracking down on light planes. Although actually that industry was so thoroughly destroyed by lawsuits that there's really not much left to do. Yeah. In the U.S. Uh, Yeah, a funny thing about light planes is basically almost the only ones that are left around are ones that come from bankrupt companies (laughs) that are just in the resale market because now they're bankrupt. There's nothing more that can be done to those companies. So now you can fly around in those planes from decades ago and keep them together with spit and glue. No one to blame but yourself for it.
1: Yeah. So I think one angle, or one reason people uh, can be negative about the news, is kind of a more conspiratorial mindset where they imagine that news companies are really pushing an aggressive agenda, trying to persuade people of things because they think that's the right thing to do. I think some of that does happen, but I think overwhelmingly that's not really the, the the problem that that I'm worried about. I think it's just the agenda of the news is to keep you watching the news. It's to bring you back to the homepage regularly because it's a business that is that gets more money when more people read the stories. So basically, they just pick out whatever headlines they they their whole highlight whatever things are most emotionally gripping to the majority of viewers, which is like you're saying, terrorism, plane crashes, random events elsewhere that are like horrible stories of things that happen to people and a massive undercoverage of the actual important things like are we curing heart disease? You know, how are we going with antibiotic resistant bacteria and, and on and on and on. So, I, I think I think someone who just reads the news naively, like is checking homepages, probably their view of the world is becoming less accurate. I don't know. On balance, I think probably they're just getting a less accurate view of the world, unless they are extremely selective about what they're
0: reading. Yeah, I mean, especially just you know doom and gloom on the idea that the media is purely trying to make money, and so there's just not that much ideology going on. I think the main thing to realize is that there's a lot of people who want to hear some negative stuff, but they're not that ideological. And when you've got those incentives set up, it is fairly easy for the people that are running the news to push an agenda. I don't think there's a conspiracy. I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. I think rather there's just worldviews that are in the air. And when you are someone that believes in it, it starts to seem like fact to you. And therefore, it's like, well, we need to find out something negative to talk about as well. We all know that racism is a super negative thing. Let's have tons of stories about racism. That's the kind of thing that's going on. And, you know, if people on the other side had a, had a different ideology where they said, no, 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 the problem is reverse racism, that would be a bad business decision. But if the people listening are fairly open-minded to hearing about anything terrible, <laughs> it's like, I'll listen to anything you say as long as it's terrible. That's <laughs> where I think a lot of the wiggle room for ideology and, in the long run, some kind of brainwashing do come in. I think it is very hard for a psychologically normal person to listen to a very biased source of news for a long time and not just start picking it up. Even people realize there's a bias. It just requires so much mental effort to constantly be saying, well, PBS said this, but we all know what PBS is like. And so take it with a grain of salt. It's more like, well, so half of the stuff was has an agenda, but the other half is just normal. It's like, no, there's an agenda all the time. During COVID, my wife just started watching the news all the time, actually, and this was very hard on me, I will say. (laughs) So now, normally, she will turn it off when I enter the room, but she'll also go to bed with it. And then when I come in, I get just my minute of news. This is where I can see, my God, this is really biased. At the same time, they're presenting themselves as being, well, we're serious. Unlike something like Fox News, for God's sake, where they have an agenda. It's like, look, you have a different tone. (laughs) but you've got an agenda for God's sake, obviously.
1: I don't want people to maybe write this off if they don't agree with the political bias angle. Personally, I agree that there are some messages and topics that journalists obviously feel more comfortable covering than others, uh, and that can lead you to be on the receiving end of a pretty non-representative sample of information uh, or ideas or evidence out of all of those that are out there. I imagine that some listeners will be nodding along to that, agreeing that much of the media is pushing a particular set of attitudes in a way that's tedious or interferes with just just giving people the facts. But other people won't feel that way. And, and at least for me and Rolf Debelli, I don't think that's not the crux of the issue. Because if I really wanted to, I, I could find outlets or journalists that feel less driven by any particular agenda. But even if I did that, uh, then many of the other reasons to avoid regularly checking the headlines would remain uh, just as compelling to me. Uh, among them, that uh, news gets risk assessment completely wrong. Just just as you've been describing, it generates a, a kind of ambient background chronic stress that's um, bad for your health and bad for your well-being. It it, it encourages us to be extreme generalists, when in order to usefully contribute to the world, you typically need to actually specialize and develop some, some unique competence in some narrower area. Um, it mostly focuses on events far away from us that are the kind of events that are the most outside of our control, which inc- encourages us to just feel powerless. And it encourages us to join in on ideological stampedes without being too careful or waiting around to find out whether or not they're truly justified. And of course, simply the day-to-day flow of random stuff happening completely obscures the big picture if you really want to understand the world you've got to read a textbook or an encyclopedia or wikipedia or papers maybe our know, world and data man yeah our world and data exactly uh, This news reinforces our natural tendency towards oversimplification and hindsight bias how often do you get uh, people writing this was extremely hard to foresee uh, we really don't actually understand why this happened almost always people are trying to offer some explanation usually it has to be oversimplified because we don't even understand what's what's going on News reinforces availability bias, leading us to base our decisions on rare but shocking events, or base them on whatever someone else wanted us to be thinking about. The news tempts us to form opinions on issues that don't really interest us, or that are too complex to comment on sensibly without really in-depth analysis. So you're reminding me
0: of a great uh, movie recommendation. The original Anchorman is funny, but Anchorman Two is profound because it is a story about the rise of cable news. So there's there is a scene where Will Ferrell he's put on like the 2 a.m. slot for this new cable channel, and he's asked to go and cover a car chase. Maybe it's not at 2 a.m., but anyway. He's asked to cover a car chase. Now, they got no facts, So through his earpiece, you hear... The station manager just saying, speculate, speculate, <laughs> and he just starts saying, "All right, well, you know, there's a car chase going on. Uh, the man, possibly well over six foot six tall, possibly intoxicated, and you're just listening to this and it's like, yes, they, you know, they're inventing the, what we see every day in real time here." And and they have that line of, you know, speculate, speculate. It's actually a catchphrase in my house when somebody doesn't have any actual information, but you want to have a story to to entertain and grip the audience. Let's just speculate. Who knows what's going on? Yeah. Right. And the scene is really funny because basically I think Will Ferrell is broken up from his wife at the time and his wife is interviewing Yasser Arafat. It's a period piece. And Will Ferrell is covering the car chase and like the and the, it starts getting so much attention that oh meanwhile over on the Yasser Arafat interview they're saying uh, we may need to go and preempt the Yasser Arafat <laughs> interview you know, to switch over to the car chase <laughs> and then Yasser Arafat says I would like to see the car chase <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, this movie is just so deep it's like and I'm not even joking like you're just watching this like this is movie hilarious but it's just Oh my God, they just, they got right into the essence of this garbage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I um, was watching a, actually, you know, every so often I, I do get hit with uh, with the front page of a, of a newspaper uh, or I see a whole bunch of headlines uh, somewhere. And these days my reaction is, it's one of being kind of angry, but not about the news but rather at the newspapers for like wanting to shove this trash in my face. I'm like, why are you telling me this? Imagine if someone walked up to you on the street and was just like l- talking about terrorist attacks, uh, talking about awful things that happen. I'm like, go away. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand that this is profitable for you, kind of. It's like very slightly profitable, but you're just like destroying my peace and not helping me in any way. It's like it's a complete mm-hmm. scam as far as like, oh, like, it's, yeah, it's a it's scam in a pretty, pretty significant way.
0: I mean, what's also striking is that when people watch the news, they get a kind of superiority pleasure from knowing a little bit before you do and then telling you, oh, have you heard the latest? Like, no, what is it? Oh, well, like, you know, some guy was blown up in Ireland, or it was like, okay, good. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I'll go act on that. So, I mean, I, I this is a case where when it's happening to me, I'm paying attention to the faces of the people, and just looking at the reactions, and you can see that no matter how awful the story is, normally, the bearer of bad tidings has this little look of smug superiority, like, I heard before you did, I know more than you, I'm a better person than you, and then the other person has a little sense of, oh, I'm not as informed as you. You are in this certain way superior to me. Now, please inform me so that I may join the superior group and not be left out in the outer outer darkness of uninformed people. You see, it is a very strange dynamic. I'd like to think that I wasn't guilty of of that, but uh, (laughs) probably about it's hard I mean, like like if you see that, like someone who sees a story, they see a person and then they want to tell them it's, yeah. you know, it's memetics in, in one of its purest forms, really, where what you know, the news, they're finding things, not only that people want to watch, they're finding things people want to repeat.
1: So uh, last night, my, my wife and I were watching a video about South Africa over the last 30 years that I'm um, uh, talking about how things have kind of gone downhill or hadn't been getting better since 2010. But it had. I was struck at the end of the, this twenty or twenty-five minute uh, explainer video how few numbers had been mentioned. I think there was like two or two or three graphs in the entire thing, and I was like. I can't tell whether this is true or not because there's just not enough data cited. So then, my wife and I we went to Data slash South Africa mm-hmm. and we went through like ten or twenty different graphs, of looking at all sorts of different things and how they how they trended for South Africa uh, over the last thirty years. And, I, I, and actually, the broad story held up. But the thing was, I felt that like I learned a lot more doing that in a couple of minutes than I did watching this this video with a whole lot of additional commentary that that is really just you know some person's some non-experts opinion on that. So yeah, ourwardendata.org I <laughs> cannot recommend strongly enough.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Huge service to humanity.
1: Okay. So... We broadly speaking agree on this topic. I feel like I should uh, stick up for, like, you know, the, the the strongest arguments that someone in the audience could could offer for for continuing to stick with the news. Because I don't I don't think it's, I don't think it's a completely hopeless case. So maybe maybe the first uh, arg- like rebuttal that I could imagine someone saying is, you know, I mostly read good news, like, uh, you know, weekly a weekly summary of the world's events in the Economist or mm-hmm. checking out, you know, I'm reading long essays in the New Yorker or long big idea pieces in the Financial Times, and you know, I'm not I'm not that interested in random grabbing shocking headlines. Is is that really so wrong? Maybe this is a net benefit.
0: I mean, that, that doesn't sound crazy. I mean, I would just say, if someone were to say, you're basically right, but I can cut down 90%, I can still be almost as well informed while reducing the harm. I think that's a really obvious position. And it's, I think that one's almost impossible to argue against. At least just say, what if you want to spend half as much time in the news? Would you really be noticeably less informed? No, but would you be less unhappy? At least in the time diary sense where you are counting the experiences of the day, then I don't see how you could fail to be more happy as a result of cutting down 50% with really virtually no change in the level of knowledge that you have even about the events themselves. Yeah.
1: There are some pieces that I miss. I do think the, the, the big idea pieces in the, in the Financial Times I, I, I do slightly miss. But I, I know that if I went back into that, then I would start getting grabbed by all kinds of different news stories. It's like it's like a massive soap opera that's going on where <laughs> it's really hard to stop watching a soap opera if you're on the edge of a seat about all of these plot lines that are going on.
0: So you could really watch the soap opera once per week and still follow the story perfectly well. You know, like the, the, the hardcore soap opera where it's on five days a week. Not almost no plot. So they just have to, <laughs> someone waiting to open the door to the hospital room to see their beloved that was burned alive in the fire. Well, you know, they can stretch that out to days. It's like, <laughs> oh, the hand's getting closer and closer to the door. At the same time, I do want to say that I disagree with one common critique of the news, which is that the journalists are terrible people and lie and distort. All of my first-hand experience with journalists is pretty much good. There's, you know, like I really have to stretch my imagination or really have to remember hard to find any time that I thought a journalist did not treat me well. When especially you know, like among professors, there's such a sense of superiority, journalists, and the way they distort and oversimplify everything. And like, when I go and talk to the media, as I often do, I find that their summaries of what I'm saying are quite accurate and that they care about getting the facts right. I, in that case, generally blame the professors because they don't give straight answers to questions, they ramble on, they're non-responsive, and then this poor person still has to eke a story out of the slim pickings he gave them. Hmm. So then maybe you say that they didn't do a good job, but well, you didn't do your job and that prevented them from doing their job. I am not someone who feels mistreated by the media at all. Possibly it's because the literal truth of what I'm saying is sufficiently entertaining. They don't need to start anything. <laughs> that would be a possible explanation. But no, I, mean, I think that you know, they are, regardless of their political views, I think that they, they have a lot of curiosity. I think on, I mean, on top of it, when the media, the media they're, 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 I think they, they are like a lot of people in the world of ideas where they have to work for a market. They're bored because they have to keep recycling basically the same story. If you think about the feelings of someone that is on, like, the Brangelina beat for a tabloid. <laughs> you like, I just feel sorry for them. That's their job. And, like, like they know they usually don't even have anything to talk about. They just sort of have to come up with something. So I think that the journalists are actually usually quite excited just to hear something they haven't heard, even if, in some sense, they're ideologically supposed to disagree with it. But they're just bored with having to repeat the same stuff over and over. And they hear something new. And they're like, oh, my God, whoa, what's that? That sounds like something that's a t- total thought crime, but uh, <laughs> on the other hand, like, at least it's new. Yeah, I mean, like, it's new. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's not as bad as they say, or I don't know, like, let's, let's just listen and find out and talk. The number of times I've actually gotten hostile questions from journalists, it's less than five interviews my whole life, and I've done hundreds of interviews.
1: Yeah, it's it's very interesting that you had such a positive experience. I think my take on this is that journalists as individuals are no better or worse. So they have no greater or lesser integrity really than, than any other people. But I feel like the business model of the news encourages kind of sloppy behavior or encourages sloppy work because just there isn't enough money in each in each individual article most of the time for people to spend very much time really deeply understanding the thing that they're writing about. And so usually when things are written about topics that I know really well through my work, I feel like... They're not completely wrong, but it's just, I, I would be really embarrassed if I wrote something that had like that much misunderstanding, like that lack of depth of understanding of the underlying issues. So I, I, yeah, whenever I read something that I feel like I know a lot about, I'm like, I wouldn't forward this to someone in order to learn about this topic. It feels like a bad like high school essay to me, even if even though it's not malicious. Uh, you don't have that impression though, it sounds like.
0: Hmm. Well, here's the thing. The very fact that they're talking to me means that They have chosen a topic that I think is worthwhile. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, in the sense that uh, the topics I work on, I consider worthwhile and definitely undervalued and understudied, which means that they're getting rid of what I see as the number one problem in the media, which is just choosing the wrong topic to go and study, working on something that is either just not numerically important or overdone or just deliberately designed to promote a certain worldview like that school that only tells you bad things about Jews. Uh, So, but the very fact they're talking to me normally means that we filtered out that greatest problem because they're going to talk to me about something that I consider worthwhile. You probably have heard of these statistical terms of type one and type two error, which people always mix up, but type three error have you heard of type three error, Rob?
1: No. So so type one and type two error is false positives and false negatives. We should probably just start calling it that. But yeah, I, what's a type three error? Yeah,
0: type three error is getting the right answer to the wrong question. Right. Which means that the very fact that I'm talking to the media about anything means that they have avoided type three error in my humble or not <laughs> humble opinion. And then we were saying that they're not better, or worse than other people. I think in a lot of ways, they're much better. So they're definitely above average in IQ. They're well above average in curiosity. especially the ones that I talk to normally seem very curious to me. They're much better than my students overall. And then really the only remaining issue is the ideological dogmatism because, as you know, there is some incredible left-right ratio among journalists. So probably it's at the level now of like 20 to 1. See, normally we don't actually have data on their party affiliation. We know what donations are like from different media outlets, so we can get an idea from there. If anything, you think that would bias it the other way if you think that you've got some rich right-wing donors. So, you know, left-wing bias is very severe. I can hear Rob saying, we don't want to alienate all of our left-wing viewers. <laughs> it's like, look, I don't want to alienate you either, but, like, just, you know, face facts. Like, you've got an overwhelming majority of certain occupations on your side. And, yeah, of course it has effects upon what they do. How could it not?
1: So. I think that this is an issue that's particularly severe with the, with the U.S. media, um, and is one reason that I read less American newspapers, uh, even even when I was reading news. I find that in the UK, obviously, like the, you know, the class of intelligent writers in the UK has a particular perspective on things, but I feel like it's much less aggressive about pushing a particular ideology on listeners uh, because there's just I think the culture wars are not as not as intense here in the UK.
0: Yeah, so if you look at uh, PBS, which is basically the U.S. analog of the BBC, it, it's this public broadcasting and you know, news, news and so on, the left-wing bias is so overwhelming. Essentially, like every story, there is a strong bias, just starting with the selections like, you know, what are the horrible things in racism that gone on today? There's always something terrible going on with racism, and it's our job to make people aware of this fact. That racism is terrible, and it is just, just overwhelming us. It's choking us in its intensity. I you mean, know, I would also say, by the way, that if you want to get, you know, if you want to just somehow balance out the level of bias that you're getting, so one thing is, I often read the BBC if I'm going to read anything, and just see so what are they saying over there. Uh, another news service I'm actually going to stick my neck out and defend is Al Jazeera. I've heard good things. People think of it as just overwhelmingly biased, and I read it as like. It's just not that biased. Like, like, basically, if you were an Islamist and then you wrote Al Jazeera, I would say it's remarkable restraint. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, creditable. It should be rewarded. Uh, a test that I often won when I'm when I'm reading articles in the media or seeing something reported is to ask myself. If the reverse had happened, would the press have reported on it? If a study found the opposite effect, would they have reported it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if any aspect of the thing had been flipped, uh, would you be hearing about it? And if the answer is no, then you're not getting much signal from the existence of that story because you'll only be hearing about all kinds of you know cases of A and no cases of not A, no matter how actually
0: prevalent they are. Yeah. So this has been pointed out where there's basically no coverage of police brutality against whites in America. And what we know from the statistics, is that that's a very large share of it. And in fact, that... The, the racial breakdown of police brutality is very closely, very closely matches the racial breakdown in actual violent crime. So it's like, all right, well, then maybe it's not racism. Maybe it's just that there's some fraction of police that are sadistic, but it's not motivated by race. not motivated by race. It's motivated by sadism, which is seems to be fairly race neutral. Right. And of course, there's the even more obvious one of what well, you think of as, as racism is just an error rate that you would expect to exist in any society. I remember a tweet that I did a while back is whenever you're reading the news, ask yourself how many events like this would happen in a well-functioning society? <laughs> 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 and So it's, it's like, like, you know, someone ran over a baby. All right. Well, how many runnings over babies would happen in society where people are actually very scrupulous in their driving and babies are well taken care of? It's got to be more than zero in a country of 300 million, right? There's just going to be some because human beings are flawed. But to say this is showing something about bad driving or child neglect or anything else, maybe it's just wrong.
1: Okay, coming back to the uh, to the different reasons that people uh, tell me for why they why they think it's important to continue reading the news. I think another one that I hear is that, you know, as a smart, altruistic citizen of my country, it's really important that I follow what's going on so that, you know, I can do my bit to make sure that things don't go to hell and I can vote well and, you know, I can know when to speak up about things that I disagree with, that the government is doing say. Uh, and if everyone like me stopped reading news, stopped slacking like like, like I am, the world would get worse because there would be like, you know, less accountability for people doing the wrong thing. Yeah, what do you make of that?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, of course, there's the general effective altruism point of unless you think that this is the most important problem in the universe, you should be directing your all of your altruistic energy towards the number one cause. So this is probably not the number one most important cause in the universe. So take that time you're spending reading on the news and put it into whatever is the number one most important problem, whether it's deworming or bed nets or whatever you have. Let's see. I mean, you know, but another key point is, like I said, even you could believe that and still recognize that you could cut down by ninety percent without any loss in your ability to perform that function. I mean, and I would say you could go and cut down way more and just go and read the Wikipedia article instead. Which I think you also know, like the political bias in Wikipedia is quite a bit lower. The getting the big picture is is a lot better. So you know I would just say you could do that instead and then you are performing this duty in a much more effective way this is where you can tell the people that only read the daily stories well actually remember there was a story that got a lot of coverage turned out to be wrong and therefore rather than it's helping us to go and hold the government to account it is scapegoating people for something that didn't even really happen in the way that people imagine and so yes it's not not in fact a big deal I mean, other things to think about are – certainly if you're just using it for voting, you can say, what are the odds that the news stories will be sufficiently severe that it would even change your vote? Right. So there's that. Uh, And then in terms of the – story well like even if i agree even if the people that i like are in power i still want to be able to be monitoring them and making sure they're doing good things and this is where again on the one hand uh, there's something to the argument but what about the point of there's a base rate of of honest just standard human error below which you ought, ought to actually be worrying that they're just not trying hard enough there's the old joke in economics about how if you've never missed a plane you spend too much time hanging around in airports similarly if you were to say that I'm going to get really angry over every mistake the politicians make, it's like, well, isn't there just some base rate of mistakes that they will make if they're doing a good job? And if you only punish the uh, you know, the kinds of mistakes that covered in the media, aren't you going and actually giving them incentive to go and do the kind of things that uh, – to ba- basically make the mistakes that come from avoiding risk?
1: from avoiding acting and just being uh, as conservative as possible to not be associated with any actions even if they had positive expected value because they because then you'll be blamed if they go badly
0: yeah right Or especially when you realize that some actions are not counted as actions by the media so failing to repeal doesn't count as an action and you know this is this is a you know general problem with any kind of deregulation repeal if after it happens any bad thing occurs that would have been prevented, or at least even imaginably prevented by keeping the regulation on the books. This is seen as the hard proof that the regulation should never have been repealed, even though cost-benefit analysis might say, look, it's better to go and cut the price of housing by 20% and have three more buildings collapse for earthquakes per year. Like Another nice illustration of this is whenever there is a disaster, the normal reaction is something has to be done to stop this from ever happening again. Again the question is well maybe we should just stay the course because this is the right number of disasters to have which horrifies people but it's like look like we shouldn't have earthquake codes so strict that no building ever collapses no matter what yeah right because the effect on housing costs would be astronomical right so why don't you tell me what is the correct number of houses to collapse in earthquakes and then we're only going to cover it in the media if we exceed that number like you just imagine the head, people's heads exploding. Like, no, we have to cover every <laughs> single one so that we can have the proper reaction. Look, this proper reaction is what makes housing costs too high.
1: That reminds me of a fantastic comedy skit from from Michelin Webb, uh, where there's a journalist who's outraged that in this very large metropolitan area, there was not a single child that drowned the previous year, uh, which which just goes to show that there was an, an incredible overspend, an incredible level of conservatism about the construction of pools and the uh, protection of, uh, of waterways to ensure <laughs> that because, in, you know, in, in a city of, uh, of this size, there should be at least a few children that are drowning every year by accident. We'll, we'll stick up a link to that one. I think, on the point of like, you know, duty as a citizen, so there is a question of like maybe this just isn't the best way to improve the world, but, but let's say that you did think that you had some particular duty to your country uh, for, for one reason or another. I think th- this can't be what drives most people's engagement with the news most of the time because I noticed that... Um, When when people kind of make this argument, they don't say, and and this is really important because I checked and I live in a really close seat. And so my vote really matters. (laughs) And uh, it's very likely to change what MP uh, gets up. For me, this argument wouldn't wash because I'm in an incredibly safe Labour seat in London. There's no chance anytime soon that my vote is going to matter one iota, so there's really no reason for me to fret that much about uh, about voting.
0: And you don't even have a primary system where you could vote for a different Labour Party person. I don't believe so. No. Yeah. So you know, like, like the US is quite different. We're even in one party. You know, like in fact, almost all cities in America are one party democratic. And yet, there is still the thing that we call primarying someone when the incumbent can, via election, with the general public, be tossed out of that position. And then, you know, so there's basically competition even within the one-party system. It's very likely much more constrained than two-party competition, but it's still far from zero, whereas you've got actual strong political parties where, yeah, it's only like like one, only like 1% of Britons belong to a political party, Right.
1: I think it's I think it's only, a, yeah, it might be a few percent now, but yeah, it's a really small number, yeah. And they're the only ones that can vote in these things. I mean, you have to pay in order to
0: join, uh, usually, so. But it's a token sum, right? What is it?
1: Uh, I think it varies. I think there's 20 pounds for one party, and then there was another <laughs> one that reduced it to, to three pounds. Still, <laughs> I mean, most people are not interested in paying 20 pounds in order to vote for who the prime minister should be. Yeah.
0: We, we could talk an hour about that, Rob. Because, <laughs> like, what this really reveals about how many dams people give about this stuff. So, so that's
1: on the voting side that people don't seem to shift their news consumption enormously based on whether they're in a close seat or based on whether they're really unsure about who to vote for. Indeed, it seems like the more sure they are who to vote for, the more, they, more they're likely to consume news. Then there's another question, but you know, I could be politically active in some other way. I could write to a minister complaining about something or other that's important that happened. But you notice the ratio between the amount of time that people spend reading about bad things that happened versus taking action based on going, you know, going to an event or writing an opinion piece themselves. Or, or I mean,
0: action equals writing an email. <laughs> <laughs> the bar of action is so low that saying send an email I'm, I'm a real activist now yeah I don't remember what the evidence is but I think the general view among political scientists is that the political influence of someone who writes an actual letter is enormous compared to voting because politicians really do actually have a staff that goes and say, well out of the actual letters we got 50 letters for the for the week. And thirty say this and twenty say that. And it's like well, that's these politicians way more than how one person's vote.
1: That, that, that's what I've heard. Yeah, that you can have really remarkable influence doing that. And, and even more influence if you actually show up to a meeting session that uh, that an MP has in, in, in their constituency. Not many people are willing to do that, but they take it very seriously when someone comes and actually is willing to talk to them in person about some issue that troubles them. But so so someone who watch, who like spent for every hour, they spent reading the news in order to learn about bad things that were happening, uh, you know, in, in their local government. And then they spent an hour taking action, like going and speaking to their MP about it. I would say that is fantastic. But when the ratio is 20 to 1 or 100 to 1 uh, between those, I think... I think it makes less sense.
0: Right. And you actually just uh, touched upon another big refutation of this. I'm learning about the news in order to influence government, which is that almost everybody primarily follows national news where you have virtually no influence. And then in the U.S., state level news gets the next level. And the area where people are paying the very least attention is local news, right, where you have the most influence. And the same also goes uh, actually for voter turnout in the U.S. Highest turnout for presidential elections, lower for state, lowest of all for local where you have the most say
1: okay so uh, a third stream of defense that I hear is that and and maybe this is the one that i'm I'm, I'm most sympathetic to or or this is the, the one thing that I feel maybe I've lost from not reading the news is this kind of frenetic energy that you get from engaging with live events that on the one hand it's kind of anxiety and it's kind of feeling bad it's kind of feeling overwhelmed by events but there's also this kind of enthusiasm energy, uncertainty, it's like watching a sports match in real time. And you're like, well, this is kind of bad because I'm worried that things will go badly. But also I'm like, I'm so engaged, right? I'm so I'm, I'm, I'm this is really activating me. I think on balance, I don't really want to have more of that in my life. I value the calm. Uh, but I do I do slightly miss that at times. I guess there was times when that was when that
0: was fun. I mean, I think that's the secret to the business model. It can't be that people are made happy by it. So it's got to be <laughs> that you're tapping into some other emotion that is at least partly positive, you know, so you like, yeah, it's anxiety, but yeah, it's the frenetic anxiety. It's being part of something it's flow. Uh, so yeah, like definitely there's a lot of flow from news, but with moderate efforts, I think you can find some much better substitutes for it. I mean, really a much better substitute for the news is just friendship. Yeah. Just having people that you, lo- that you would like spending time with, this is the main secret of human happiness. People are primarily happy when they're spending time with people whose company. They enjoy. You, know, you might compare the news to spending time with like your cousin that you hate, but uh, you've <laughs> known each other and you sit there pushing each other uh, pushing each other's buttons. Like, wouldn't you rather be with a relative that you have positive flow with than this negative flow? It's like, yeah, well, it's too hard to find that. But it's like, well, if you don't re- if you don't recognize what you're really looking for, you're really not likely to find it.
1: OK, so here, here's a controversial point that uh, Rolf makes in, in, in the book, maybe, maybe to, to, to begin to close out this section. And that is that reading the news and journalism and the media in general are the direct cause of terrorism. The notion there being that terrorists commit terrorism in large part to get massive media coverage. So when the media provides massive media coverage to terrorist attacks and we choose
0: to read about it, that motivates further terrorism. What do you think of that argument? I think it's got to be at least 70% true. I mean, I don't think, you know, so if you were to just get rid of news entirely, there would still be some terrorism, you know, they're hoping to spread it through word of mouth or whatever. But yeah, like, obviously, they're highly motivated by the social dynamics. It's hard to see how you can doubt it. I mean, if you were to just go back historically, if they were to say, like, were there things that we would classify today as terrorism before there was any mass media? It's like, there's a few things that you might go and count, but I mean, really that's sort of, it's it's anachronistic because in the past when there's a pogrom and they aren't doing it for the purposes of getting reaction, they're doing it just to kill a bunch of people that they're mad about in in that area. I mean, you might say pogroms have have a motivation of, we go and we massacre a couple towns and this will lead to mass flight from the country from all the other people that are worried about it. And that's terrorists in a sense. But this is actually one of several examples of things where if you know the broad span of human history, mass media seems to have changed the way that bad things happen. You know, know, closely related to terrorism is if you look at the way that the motivations and the dynamics and and just the way that wars played out in the past – Normally, the ways that wars used to work is there'd be two countries, one would attack another, one side would be decisively defeated, and then they would for, then there'd be a peace treaty where they would go and permanently, quote-unquote, hand over some land to the other side. That's the way that it worked. And in those days, you could very plausibly see, okay, they're fighting because this side wants the city of Cologne with its salt mines or whatever. Right now, if you look at the modern world, there are a lot of wars where Really, the whole point of it is just to antagonize people. There's no actual goal. There's no resource anyone wants. There's no plausible risk. And furthermore, there's no actual resolution. The normal result of a war in the modern period is what was called a frozen conflict zone, where no peace, no war, we have a ceasefire, and that's the end of it. Until, of course, war fighting breaks out again. So if you just look at be a, prior to Ukraine, all of you know, Russian military interventions. They basically go and they, and they there's some incident, and they grab a little piece of territory, and they basically just give the middle finger to the rest of the world. And then there's a ceasefire, and that's it. It's just not the kind of war that used to be fought. You know, like there's very little strategic military economic point to the territory that seized. It's more of just showboating for the media and saying, look, there were some ethnic Russians there. You can't push this around. Ha.
1: I guess the, the Mongols massacred people when they resisted them, which I, uh in order to induce other cities to surrender. I guess you could think of that as a sort of terrorism.
0: Actually, my sons who know this history quite a bit better than I do say that a lot of that is exaggerated and the Mongols would often massacre people who surrendered immediately. And it's like, what were they thinking? Like, they were just some violent dudes. Barbarians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they were really barbaric. They like, It's like, what did we have to do to not get massacred? Oh no, <laughs> the men need blood. I'll live somewhere else. Yeah. An important question here, if we're, if we're trying
1: to just take this from a very pragmatic point of view, is if the media just had a blanket ban on reporting of terrorism, in the long run, how much would we expect terrorism to decline? And I guess you, you were saying something like 70%. That seems about, that seems kind of, kind of reasonable to me.
0: Yeah. Presumably, you wouldn't be able to go and ban people from emailing things that'd be viral emails. Exactly. I believe there'd be a lot of substitution, where it's like the terrorism the media doesn't want you to know about. So there'd be kooks within it with internet lists and you'd have to have a real police state to go and totally crack down on it. Yeah. So Rolf refers
1: to uh, an interesting study on, on, this, on this question uh, in, in, the, in the section on terrorism, where he, he tries to find a source of random variation in how much the media covers terrorist attacks. So he looks at, um, that you know, there's a period of substantial terrorism in Iraq and, and the Middle East more broadly uh, during the 2000s. Uh, but sometimes when there was an equivalently bad terrorist attack, there would be a natural disaster or something else that would push it off the front pages really quickly. Mm-hmm. And other times there wouldn't be another news story that would push it off the, off the front pages really quickly. I, I think, you know, this is, Really hard research to do well, but the study claimed that on occasions when you got more coverage of a terrorist attack, that induced more terrorist attacks in, over the following week uh, relative to cases where the where the previous one had been unsuccessful, and it just makes a ton of sense. Just makes a ton of sense, right? So so the media does actually coordinate to a point to to not cover some things. For example, they they no longer give graphic descriptions of teen suicides because they think that that induces other teens to commit suicide and, and there's and there's evidence of that. They also at least in some countries they don't give the name of mass uh, killers anymore because they thought again that that was inducing um people to people to commit mass murder. They get, you're getting copycat cases. But I don't know of any effort to get the media to stop covering terrorism, even though the argument is kind of very much the same here, that in this case, they're explicitly targeted, more or less, to try to get media coverage, that the media could decide that we're just not going to cover this because, I mean, apart from anything else, it doesn't actually kill that many people in the scheme of things. And it's a completely manipulative action, just trying to get, trying to pull the media strings. So I think it's actually kind of shameful that, that, you know, the New York Times and other newspapers have never thought about doing this.
0: Now, your random variation point makes me realize that there is... One important counterexample of what we're saying, Rob, and that is when there is an overwhelmingly horrible thing in the news, it is standard for the worst dictatorships in the world to immediately go and carry out some horrible atrocities, knowing they're not going to get much attention for them. So if I remember correctly, Eritrea. When there was some major horrible thing in global news, then they went and executed a bunch of political prisoners, and then they didn't get the coverage they would have gotten normally. So it does say that there are certain kinds of bad things that the media does exert restraint on, just in the interest of balance. I think it is worth pointing that out. Now, as to what would happen in a world where almost no one was following the news, maybe it really would be true that – those kinds of countries would just feel like they can get away with all, with uh, almost anything. So it's like, hmm, all right. Um, you know, maybe we can go, we, we only talk about the very worst things, but it's tough. All
1: right, we should uh, bring this one to, to a close. I might just, I do want to encourage listeners to go away and listen to this book, stop reading the news.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean just the point of cut it down by at least half, try that, see what happens. I don't I mean, that's one where I just think that it's almost impossible to argue against that. Other than I really enjoy it.
1: Yeah. But then you have to think, am I really enjoying this? <laughs> is this enjoyment or is this something else? I, I I think it's harder actually to cut it down by half than it is to almost cut out completely because it's, just, it's so grabby, right? Like once you're on the homepage, then you're seeing all of these things vying for your attention. I think if someone finds it hard to cut down by half, then I would suggest that they actually try the more extreme option of just cutting it out completely. Just get a blocker that stops you from visiting the homepages of of, of news sites. There's lots of apps that do that. I might might whet whet your appetite with a couple of other points. So a couple of the criticisms of of news that, that, that Rolf makes. One thing we didn't talk about is many office workers, me included, I think, are in the habit of checking the news every couple of hours while they're at their desk. This is super distracting. Uh, it means that you like lose your lose your train of thought, and you have to like try to you know restore it all uh, back back into your mind afterwards in order to try to get uh, to to be
0: productive again. I mean, probably people would be looking for some other distraction. I know that's how I am. That's true. Yeah. Right. And there's this old piece by Robin Hansen where he went over the effect of breaks on productivity. And it really does seem like brakes are a good idea for total productivity. So I, I mean, it may, it may be that if you go and look at something really horrible, then that's not giving you the refreshment that you actually are looking for, or it's well, it's staying with you after you get back to work. But the, the general utility of brakes purely from the point of view of total productivity Uh, Seems fairly well established. In particular, that paper, some of the papers that was going on had very precise quantitative estimates of how much your productivity is declining as you go without a break. And then I think actually does uh, do the math of working out what is the optimal timing and uh, duration of breaks.
1: that's a pretty good point that I I hadn't thought of to be honest another one is uh, news gives us the illusion of empathy I think people often feel like they've done something useful they've helped people by reading about something awful that's happened elsewhere in the world uh, you've read about this earthquake and so you care but in fact real empathy requires action. Real empathy implies actually doing something to help people, not just the voyeurism of watching awful events overseas. And that is like 99% of what we do in these cases.
0: Yeah. Sort of the idea that you've got some mental budget of how much time you're going to spend on altruism. And if this fake altruism feels like altruism to you, then it's actually cutting down on something real. Again, this is one where I think that someone could fairly say that one of the main ways that we raise money for horrible tragedies is by showing them some terrible news. But then there's the EA point of, yeah, but are the kinds of tragedies that get uh, that, that get a lot of news coverage actually the ones that should be getting the most money?
1: Yeah. And I mean, m- maybe that does have uh, the effect on other people, but couldn't you save your time completely and just decide to give some money to charity and give it to the thing that's most useful and then you don't have to watch any of it? Right.
0: I mean, again, I think that there the usual response would be something like, well, that might be far, fine for Martians like Brian and Rob, but for a normal person, they'll either, either they will give nothing or they'll give because they've been moved by some gripping images. I think there's probably something to do that, honestly.
1: All right. Well, um, I think I think we've we've done news reasonably well. So I'd be interested to hear from from listeners if any of them decide to uh, decide to cut back on news and and how it how, how it goes for you. Let's put on to another topic, which is artificial intelligence. And people have been hassling me to do an AI section with you since 2018. And, and we're, we're finally doing it. So it's so, so fingers crossed we, we won't disappoint people. Now, unlike the previous topic, this is one where we have pretty different views. And I'm kind of clean to explore that and understand your view better. I guess at a high level, I think the impacts of AI technology over the next 40 years are going to be very big. Uh, and I'm anxious about it because I think you know there's a more than 10% probability that it could be extremely good uh and a greater than 10% probability that it could go very badly in in you know one of one of many different ways uh, and i guess by contrast i'd say you think the impacts of ai technology are going to be more modest and you think they're many more times um, likely to be good than bad so you're, so you're not not feeling that anxious about it
0: yeah yeah so my negative tail risk you're right is very low
1: so from listening to your previous interviews on this, i I'll characterize you as mostly drawing your view from what uh, you think of as common sense, that the future won't be radically different from the past. And you're thinking of historical analogies to AI, like the introduction of electricity or the creation of steam engines and so on. And I think that the the idea that AI could lead us in a very bad direction in my view, is actually super common sense. Uh, more common sense than, than the idea that we should be really confident that it will go well. So uh, I'm, I'm going to try to put some arguments along those lines to you. I want to steer us away from the idea of super intelligence and misalignment, because while you know I place some, some weight on them, they're not doing most of the work to make me anxious. And, and I think that people should be should be nervous about the future, even if you're sure we'll never have intelligence that's greater than a human level. And even um, if AIs with their own independent agenda that are in conflict with humans, like is, is impossible because something is something that could never happen.
0: I mean, I'm puzzled by this idea of we'll never have intelligence greater than human level. I would say that this calculator here, this calculator from 35 years ago from my high school chemistry, in a sense, it's already smarter than any human.
1: Yeah, at a specific skill,
0: like in like a fairly wide range of skills, it's just better than any human will be. And this is from the 1980s, and like Ryan, you're still using a calculator from the 80s. Yeah, it's that good. I like that calculator. I'm not going to give it up from my cold dead hands.
1: <laughs> so, so, so I agree. It's clear that AI is going to exceed human capabilities in particular in particular areas because it already does. But I guess I want to say hypothetically, let's say that it doesn't exceed, like all it does is, is pull even with like with a smart human in all these areas. I think that there's still reasons to think that that could go uh, very badly. So I guess with that out of the way, I should give you a chance to lay out your, your overall take. Yeah. How do you think AI technology is likely to play out in coming decades? And maybe what was the most likely way in your mind for, for the effects to be negative?
0: So I have changed my mind on this a lot over the last year, because until a year ago, I just considered this to be total vaporware. Do you do you still remember? Do you remember this expression, vaporware?
1: Vaporware, yeah, yeah, a game that a game that they start working on and then it never appears.
0: Yes, so like the number of times I've been told by people, "Oh my god, the AI is so fantastically good," and then I look at it and it's just like it doesn't seem to work at all. What are you talking about? You know, or people go and say, like, it's gotten so good at chess. and Like, yeah, well, that's just what I would expect that it would be good at. And who cares? Chess isn't important. It's like, no, no, now it can do Go. Like, it goes an even dumber game than chess. I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I have actually told friends, look, when it's good at Dungeons and Dragons, let me know. That's a real game. yeah That's a game that I actually care about that really is an es- is essential to being a human being. So that was my view for a long time because people just made claims that seemed unlikely to be true. And I checked them out and they were false. And I all right, well, and then when GBT3 came along, once again, people started saying, this is fantastic. And I said, all right, let's go and see what happens if I go and give my, I was my labor economics midterm to GBT3, and it got a D, right? And then the reaction from some fans is, to get a D on that exam is an incredible achievement. I'm like, do you realize how low my standards are? No, <laughs> D not an incredible achievement. It's, it's basically what you get for just sort of mentioning some key terms and we're like rambling on a bit about the question. So that was where I said, okay, so this is basically vaporware number 173. But then GBD-4 came out, and I gave it the same exams, and it did great. It got A's. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) all right. And this is in the course of three months. over the course of three months, it goes from a D to an A. And I remember when I was arguing with my friends, I, I was even saying, So you're saying the next version is going to, be able, is going to do a lot better on the test. Tyler Cowan just said, Your tests don't count for anything anyway. Who cares about your stupid tests? And I, said, I care about my stupid tests. My, to, my, <laughs> to my mind, these tests show whether people are really thinking about the subject, whether they understand it on a deep level, whether they can take what I have taught them and apply it in ways that are not just rote memorization. And of course, since I've been giving these tests for 25 years, I feel like I've got a really good sense of what level of thought and depth it goes behind certain levels of answers versus others and of course and I just feel like I understand this metric much better than I understand most other metrics Furthermore, I consider it to be a lot more, uh, more impressive than being able to do well in an SAT, where I'll say, look, they've got hundreds of SATs that they can train off of. It's not that surprising that you can get a machine to go and do well on a test that it has all this training data on. But on the other hand, my tests are either not in the training data, or at least there's not just not that much of it. So if a machine can do well on it, then that would really say something. It's saying that it's actually got some kind of general performance capability. And, and anyway, so went and gave it a test three months later with GB4 and it got an A. And I I will say my jaw did drop. I had a bet on it. The bet doesn't mature until 2030 and it, and it's a higher bar than just getting an A once. So I still feel like maybe I'll win just by virtue of bad luck for the, for the AI. But I will say that the guy that bet me in terms of the substance, I think that it shows that he in particular was right. So anyway, that's where it really changed my mind about the ability to go and perform well on tasks of this kind, which do mean a lot to me. I mean, I do actually consider the ability to go and learn material to the, uh, to the degree where you can get an A on one of my tests. That is something where, I'm not going to say it's what separates humans from the animals, but it's some gut level. And, you know, it's what separates someone that I want to have lunch with with someone that I don't want to have lunch with, whether they are capable of learning this material in the, uh, uh, to the degree where they can get an A on one of my tests. You know, it's not like I don't want to talk to you if you haven't taken the class with me, but if you couldn't, I right, went after taking the class, go and do well on the test. Then it's like, eh, ah, I mean, you're just, there's something about you. That's not, you know, not that not, isn't engaging to me anyway. So I mean, I did change my mind about the performance there, but this is where, you know, like where this all comes back to me as base rates. Now, Scott Alexander has this phrase of base rate ping pong, where he says, look, anytime someone makes a base rate argument, you can always make a different base rate argument. And then base rates really don't, aren't, aren't meaningful. So I say base rate for people saying something is going to be the end of humanity. And then how often have they been right? And they're like, they've never been right. Cause, but I could have The base rate of a new weaponizable technology gets released. And and then we do the average of how many times of how many people would kill. And it's like, okay, then that winds up being high. All right. So it is true that you can go and do this. And this really actually is almost directly out of Hume's problem of induction. Yeah. Not quite the same, but still it is very much in the same ballpark of for any observation, what is the correct generalization to draw? Now, it is hard for almost any rationalist to really stick with this base rate ping pong nihilism because it is a nihilistic view. Because remember, one of the main lessons out of books like super forecasting is that an essential skill for good forecasting is thinking in terms of base rates. So just to go and say like, no, 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 you can't trick me with this base rate trick, base rates. We can just do ping pong all day. And there's no such thing as a right base rate or even a better, or worse base rate. It's like, if you're going to say that, then like the whole rationalist product project crumbles. It is very close to just saying we can't learn anything from experience per the original Hume's problem of induction, and yeah, if you don't think you can learn anything from experience, there's no EA project, of course. Like <laughs> what? Are, like there's no existing other than Hume saying, "Well, I just kind of pretend that I don't know this stuff and have uh, a beer with my friends and try to get through the next day." Yeah. So that's where I would I would say if we're not willing to go and think in terms of base rates, then we can barely converse anymore. If we're going to say that there's just no such thing as a more or less reasonable base rate,
1: so so I definitely wouldn't
0: say that. I think.
1: I mean, I, yeah, I think that this question of, yeah, what is the right reference class and what is the right base rate? Uh, like how surprising is this uh, idea on its face is a really important one. I mean, what you have to do is just say, well, here's like, you know, the five or I guess if you're lucky, 10 different plausible reference classes or like the, the best matching reference classes that you can fit this in. And they're going to give a, a, a range of different views on how improbable a claim is uh, on on its face. And then you kind of want, maybe want to average across them. Uh, I don't know, take take the medium. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, we usually, we don't get that precise. But I think with this, you'll find with some base rates it seems very unlikely and then with other base rates it seems plausible enough that if you uh, that you might update to it seeming reasonably likely based on the on the specific based on the more inside view considerations about the technology so yeah i guess i would like to understand better to what extent our, our different predictions are driven by different ideas about whether ai models will be capable of doing specific things anytime soon or whether we agree on that, but we disagree about whether it would be dangerous or at least worrying if they did have those capabilities. So so I I want to suggest a bunch of different hypothetical AI capabilities and see first if you think they're plausible and then if you'd worry if they were. So do you think that by 2035, there will be a generative AI model that could guide a team of 10 biology graduate students through the process of designing an extremely deadly and extremely contagious viral pathogen?
0: So this is one where the main thing in my mind is the marginal risk. If you were to give me just the probability those humans could do it on their own and then say, how much extra risk is the AI adding? That's the way that I'm always coming at this. Yeah. So, I mean, as to whether it could do it, I mean, this is one where I would just say, well, I've got to find out like what's going on in biology first and see how well humans are doing in terms of how much it, the AI would augment the pre-existing capability if they were to try. That's where I can see, you know, like maybe this is going to go and double that risk. But then I would say that the I think just the initial risk of this is is sufficiently low that I'm not that worried about a doubling. So yeah, I mean, I do think it's plausible this could speed up the process. It's just that how worried are you about the idea of biologists trying to design super super germs? And that's where I'll say, well, like I'm a little worried. Uh, There's a number number of reasons why you'd say, well. Like basically, I would only be worried about a government doing it because it would be so such a foolish thing for biologists to do on their own initiative, and they'll, they'll end up in jail and worse. So, I'd really only be worried about a government doing it. And then it's like, hmm. Well, a government doing it, they they, they would know that this thing is very, is all very likely to infect their own population too. So, it, it seems like a pretty bad thing for them to be working on. But then again, governments will do things like that despite the fact that they're a bad idea. So. I think it's plausible that it would augment human ability. I, you know, the idea that it would take human ability to do it from zero to something uh, to something noticeable, that's where I would doubt it.
1: Yeah, so I think about this as kind of lowering the threshold of kind of funding and staffing that you need in order to be able to, to do this. So North Korea, I think, could definitely already do this. Indeed, it might already have done so. And maybe the biggest risk that we face today is that a bioweapons program in North Korea accidentally leaks a really dangerous pathogen, a pathogen that they've created. But I agree that's, it's certainly possible, but it, but it, but it seems really unlikely.
0: Well, when
1: you put it that way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean just North Koreans.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at least for today, that is one of the biggest risks that we face is that I mean, we also know that Russia had an enormous bioweapons program that they hid for decades and it probably is still continuing in some form. So it's possible that that, that Russia could accidentally end up leaking a pathogen that they've created probably a bit less likely than North Korea. But 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 I think of it as... So a team of 1,000 biologists working on this for a couple of years, I think now they could successfully do this. I think, you know, uh, as the technology advances, you get down to 100 people, maybe, maybe they could do this. And then it kind of it keeps going down and they need like less time, less expertise, like less amazing materials. And I reckon like generative ai models at, at the moment they're able to give kind of useful advice on this to someone who's a non-expert but i think that they're getting better at actually being able to you know come up with ideas for how to achieve these goals that uh, that a smart biology grad student wouldn't come up with and and my fear is it's going to lower the lower the barrier to entry for doing this such that a small group of weirdo motivated people
0: could 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 have a crack at this my view there of the technology would just be that there's the ideas about how to do it but there's actually practically going and getting the real world physical resources together to move ahead with it and i would think of those are so built into this project that you could go and make the cost of getting the ideas down to zero and still not have a very large change in the quantity because you still need to get the labs. You've got to get the, like, like the actual physical capabilities of doing these things. I mean, in, the, in the same way that if you were to go to an AI and say, tell me how to go and build a nuclear bomb using materials only available in my hometown – uh, the AI could be as good as you want, and as a, like so there just isn't a way for one person to go and do this. You know, like you just need way more physical materials. Even if you had all the blueprints, it would not mean that you would be capable of doing it. I mean, you're, you're right about moving the thresholds marginally, but in terms of how much is it in multiplying the risk and you start with some base rate or some base risk of human b- human beings doing it on their own without any ai and then go and say how much is ai boosting it I mean, this is sort of a general issue with what economists call production functions which is normally you actually need a whole lot of different things to get in combination and there's limited substitutability where the, you know like you can't just go and say let's double the number of, of workers and have the amount of physical materials in a car like, you can't make the car work with half the physical materials. doesn't matter how many people you've got working on it. So, I mean, I would say that that is a lot of what's giving me peace of mind on specific kinds of terrible things that you could do, which is, yes, human beings could do them already you know, if they got the right materials, but it's not like there's just one scarce material, nor should you think of AI as sort of like the one ring to rule them all. It's the resource that gives you all the resources, I you imagine it's an AI where you say, okay, tell me how to get plutonium easily. It's like, you get plutonium easily this way. Tell me how to get, see, so you know, like, it's like, it isn't really going, it isn't really like that. So there's just a lot of things that are just inherently physically difficult that an AI can go and give you great advice, and yet it's still not that helpful.
1: Yeah. For what it's worth, experts who worry about bioweapons and people who have looked into this, they're definitely. Troubled. Like they can foresee that, you know, within the next 10 years, these things could be really quite helpful in, in instructing you on like what sort of genetic sequence do you need to get? How, how do you stitch it together? Uh, you know, how would you actually actually embody it in a in a, in a viral shell?
0: I mean, you know, I like, mean, like what I noticed though is they usually do use this grammar of could be really helpful. It's very hard to get any of these people to actually say, what's the current probability? What's the probability when AI gets uh, gets gets a lot better? And honestly, here's the thing that really strikes me about Physical scientists is that they are not good at thinking probabilistically. They seem to be very subject to these normal problems of either rounding low risk down to zero or up to 1%.
1: So, so I, I think that the people that I'm thinking of would say, you know, the probability that it's going to be very useful in the next 10 years is like 50%. So, okay, maybe you get like a, you know, a 50% discount because it might not work, but they think it's like really quite material. Right. And that we could get down to something where we're less than 10 educated people, you know, working in a lab and just kind of throwing it together and um, not telling people what they're up to might be able to do this. And then, you know, there's quite a lot of labs, it's quite uh, around in different countries. So so that that worries people. But let's try a different one. Do, do you think that by, uh, say, 2060, we'll have AI or machine agents that- resemble people in the sense that they have their own goals that they pursue independently. And, and, you know, they might have physical bodies and they might have legal rights, but not necessarily.
0: Right. I'll give the hardest no on will they have rights. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And this is where I will... I will say, look, human beings disregard non-human things, even non-human animals, but definitely anything that once you know that it is what we think of intuitively as a machine, where you open it up and you see that it's got gears or whatever wires inside of it, human beings just regard those as fundamentally morally different from biological beings in a way that I, I do not think this is very culturally relative or culturally specific. It is very deeply built into the human mind. I've mean, i been arguing this with Robin Hansen for quite a while and I say look look at like every single sci-fi show where there's a robot and and then people care about it and then you open it up and they go oh it's just robots in that case I don't care anymore and Robin is very insistent it won't be that way it won't be that way and it's like this makes sense to everybody else, Robin. Like, like, like. <laughs> in, ter- in terms of having their own goals, this is where I'll say, "Well, does it count as having your own goal if someone can go and give you a goal and they can change it again if they want to?" But sometimes they just let you go around having that goal.
1: What, what about let, let's say that they have their own goals to the same extent that humans do, which is that they're influenced by other people. They can be kind of partially instructed, but but also they're not not completely.
0: Yes, but it's not capable for some for whoever designed them or built them to go and edit the and, and re-edit them and then turn them back to the way they want.
1: Um, well, in in practice, they are operating in the world, going off and doing things and not being closely monitored at, at that level.
0: Yeah. Yes, but, but but for but you know, if someone is unhappy with their performance, they can then go and re-edit.
1: But potentially, the yeah, you know, the same way that you could kind of uh, you know pick up a criminal and try to put them in prison.
0: Yeah, but but not in the same way that you could go and say change the preferences on your on a computer. Right. Yeah, so so I'll put that at really low. I think that under one percent that I'll just say people don't want to design things like that. They want to design things that they can control to make them do what they want. It's not like reprogramming a criminal. It is like you know, it's like a computer where if the computer's malfunctioning enough, you just shut it off. I don't like what it's doing. You know basically, this just comes down to they're going to be built by humans for human purposes. Humans don't want it to be able to be like that. They might go and want to have it, you know give it the illusion of that. Like it might be that like in a video game, you program the computer to try to beat you because it's more fun if the computer's trying to win. But it doesn't mean that it's not you're not capable of going in and or at least the program and you can't go and edit the settings, so it just renders to you unless you crush it. The th- closest thing to this that I did a lot was I played an enormous amount of the game Civilization 2. and in there you could go and create scenarios where you could go and edit the preferences of the AI and, uh, and, do, and control it in a lot of other ways, or you could even go and just force its hand and make it do things if you wanted to do it. And this is one thing where this is really almost the opposite of a criminal. This is, in fact, you have absolute control, even though it is not fun to absolutely control it most of the time because... Then it's not a game anymore.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so you think this is this is really unlikely? Hypothetically, if you, if you, uh, you know, someone came back from the future and said, "Yes, by 2060 there are machines that act autonomously in the same way that say you know an employee acts autonomously of, of, of their boss." Absolutely. In that case, would you be more worried about how things
0: might play out? Hmm. Let's see, I mean, of course, you know, I don't want to block the hypothetical, but my reaction is, I just don't believe you. I don't, I don't believe you're a time traveler. <laughs> I see, right, right, okay, but second of even if you are a time, if you if like you convince me you're a time traveler, then <laughs> my mind gets very open. Because like, if you can do time travel, Jesus Christ, you could do like what couldn't you do if you could do time travel? <laughs> right. If it's just somehow we we know that that you know, that, that it will be so. I yeah I would say that I would get at least you know, moderately more worried. Then it would come down to well, even there it's like well someone designed them to go and be a certain way, uh, and then but you know after they're designed then they sort of lose control over them, and you know and, and and then my next question is like there's there there's no kill switch there's no way to just shut them off if you don't like what they're doing, and you say no, 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 no there's not that somehow they somehow they figure out a way to shut that off. Then I guess I would be. I mean, I I would not I would I would not be losing sleep, but it definitely would go and multiply my worry quite a bit just because I would be saying, well, what exactly are their goals then?
1: Yeah. OK, here's another one. Do you think that by 2035, we'll have AI systems that if they were instructed to would be capable of hacking onto computer servers in many different places in the world? copying themselves onto those computer servers and usually remaining undetected for months while in some kind of hibernation mode, but able to reactivate themselves if the situation called for it.
0: I would say that if nothing else changes, yes, but at the same time, if you have that technology, it's going to also be capable of doing antivirus stuff. So the idea that I should be more worried in that world than the world of today I, it's not at all clear to me. It's like, well, which thing becomes, which basically, which function is going to improve at a faster rate? And I don't have any strong intuition for about that. So I wouldn't, uh, you know, it's definitely not something that would worry me. I would say, well, like basically it's an arms race and maybe things will be better than they are rather than worse. You might just say, well, anytime there's greater uncertainty, there's a greater chance of something going really wrong. And I'll say, okay, I guess that's true. But at the same time, we we just have pre-existing risk of viruses, so it's like hmm, maybe I should be worried about those.
1: Yeah. Okay. So so let's say I, I agree with what you're saying that it's, it's a question of like offense versus defense, and we're not sure which one is going to be dominant at, at at different periods of time. Let's say that you just somehow knew that you know for some significant period of time, a decade, say, offense on this would be would be dominant, and it's kind of would be possible to do this. Uh, would that make you more more anxious about how things would play out?
0: Yeah, because we gotten so dependent on computers. So if you actually were able to get a big disparity, then you could go and you know hack the world or try doing ransomware for the world or whatever. And yeah, it's like it's a big deal. So and it would be facile to say, well, we'll just go back to the world of nineteen ninety because <laughs> Yeah, because we don't have the things. Yeah. we we've, we've really integrated our society with this technology. So there's gonna be a harsh transition period of starvation, probably.
1: Okay, here's a different one. Do you think that by 2060 we'll have the necessary AI models and computer hardware to run the equivalent of the mental work of 10 billion smart human adults, you know, are working
0: working hard at their jobs? Hmm. So 2060 I that wouldn't shock me. I would want to know a lot more about what's even going on right now, but but yeah, wouldn't wouldn't shock me.
1: Yeah. Um, and does that, does that framing of things like make you worry at all thinking that, well, the population, like the, the person equivalent population of machine intelligence that is capable of doing like most of the stuff that humans can do, that's actually like, they might outnumber us just in sheer, in sheer numerical terms.
0: Yeah. As long as there's human beings who have programmed them to do what human beings want, then I would not be worried. No. Okay. Like there's always like a little bit of residual of worry, of course. And there's like, well, hmm, I mean, the world's kind of confusing. So like, I guess like, like the main thing I like, like, you know, this, this may seem strange, but I would say, you know, the thing to really worry about is probably the thing that nobody's thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> we got We got to try to think about that. There's this famous fake graduation speech. And it just says that, you know, like the things that things that are really going to cause horrible harm to your life or things that you've never even occurred to you would be an issue. Um, you know, like it's much more eloquent than that, but if you track it down, it's a, it's a great spiel of personal advice.
1: We should uh, we should have some people working on that. Yeah, this is, this is a good moment maybe to bring up. So you, you, I think you know of Holden Holden Karnofsky.
0: Oh yeah, of course. Yep. Yeah. Hi, Holden.
1: <laughs> we did an episode with him earlier earlier in the year, and I guess so. So you've been you've expressed a lot of skepticism about even if you're super intelligent as a machine, even if you know you have a, a very long period of training time, much more data than any human could consume, and so you've exceeded human capabilities in in many domains. There's just only so much that you can do with intelligence. There's only so much prediction that is actually possible, no matter how smart you are. There's only so much manipulation that's possible, uh, and and I, I agree with that. I guess we don't know exactly where the limits are gonna are gonna lie. There's uncertainty about that, but I think it's a I think it's a great point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I like I've got great confidence that the most incredible intelligence of the universe is not going to be able to construct 10 words that will make me kill myself. Yeah. Like, I don't care how good your words are. Like, words don't work that way. I agree. I agree. So
1: Holden's argument is that um, even if we don't have uh, you know, machines that are more capable than humans, if they're just as capable as, you know, smart, generally competent humans. Machines have this advantage over human beings that they can increase in population much faster than humans can, basically. That humans, our population growth rate is about 1%. Uh it takes, you know, uh 15, 20 years for a human to be to, to become useful. But by contrast, AIs as software, you can just copy them onto additional hard drives. You can, you can, you can replicate them super fast. Like at the moment, kind of the the, the population growth rate of thinking machines is like hundred percent well, it's 1% for for humans. So you could potentially end up in a situation where simply humans end up losing out because they're just massively outnumbered by the by the sheer amount of thinking and action that is going on. And, and it can also, you know, this can involve like a lot of different agents, or it can involve one agent that is thinks incredibly fast relative to a single person. It can do so much work in the same amount of time and it can react really, really quickly because it's got access to so much compute. So I guess I haven't heard you respond to, to that general concern of just being overwhelmed by force of force of numbers. Um, do, 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 does that does that give you any any worry about how things might play out?
0: Yeah. No. As as long as we are sticking with the program by humans to serve human ends, that I'm not worried at all. Yeah. I mean, I'm already greatly outnumbered by machines. And like, and and why am I not worried? Well, like all the ones that I'm interacting with were designed by human beings to go and help me and do what I want. There are, of course, some other scary machines that some hostile humans have, like you've got the Russian nuclear arsenal. But there I'm not worried about the weapons. I'm worried about the people. Of course, you say, well, it's kind of an interaction of the two. Like, yes, that it is an interaction of the two. But still, the fundamental issue is, do they want to go and use what they've got to go and kill me? It's not that there's so many of them that it's going to kind of take control of the situation. That does not make much sense to me. Again, unless Sigori 2 think about them having this literal... True autonomy, not fake autonomy, where you say, "Hey, give me, you know, give me a challenge in a game," but rather the autonomy where, like you, you have just lost the edit capabilities to go and change what it's going to do.
1: Yeah, so so it is interesting that you've made arguments that it's not, it wouldn't be possible for machines in, in various ways to to take over. But then, even if you think that they could, in principle, if they were motivated to do so and coordinated to do so, it doesn't worry you because you think it's so unlikely that they would generate. you know, independent goals or hostile goals to to humans. Uh, And so kind of you got this like two level thing where either one by itself that changing doesn't doesn't actually make you worried.
0: Right, right. And especially like, I've always got this last one that I know people consider simple minded, but I think it's reasonable like the kill switch. Like, when have human beings ever built a machine that we don't have some way of shutting off if we're not happy? Uh, You know, it's like, well, we don't have a way of shutting off, like Americans don't have a way of shutting off a Russian incoming nuclear weapon. All right, fine, we don't have that. But Somebody over there has, has, has that capability. You can't reverse it one second before it lands.
1: So I I think that is a weak argument for, because I do think that it will be possible for these uh, machines, if instructed or so motivated to break into computer servers all over the world and and put themselves on there and basically resist being turned off because they can, they can just spread all over the place, extremely hard to find, extremely hard to deactivate.
0: If they've got their own motivations and they're, and they're totally acting in defiance, of what what their designers want. Or if they're merely instructed to, or if they're merely instructed to do so. But then remember, we've got the offense versus defense story again. We've got, which is going to go faster, our ability to, to go and, and use AI to prevent this from happening or ability to go, of AI to go and do it.
1: So so I agree. It, like, I think it's unclear whether that would be possible, but I think it's like one in two, maybe one in three likely that there'll be, I mean, I think this is one of the things that people really need to work on. And it is one thing that people are shouting about is to say, this is one way that things could get out of control. Like not necessarily by misalignment, merely by uh, being given harmful instructions. But if it is the case that we can secure computer networks, we we can have like defense dominance on information security, such that it wouldn't be possible for a motivated uh, ML system to break into other computers and access significant compute uh, without being without it being easy to turn them off. If we could do that, then that would make things a lot safer.
0: Yeah, or you know, or, or at least it's a marginal problem rather than something that's civilization wrecking. You know, like you know, like you no know, matter how def- good defense is, there's going to be bugs, and you can see something going and getting through. But the question is, is it? where as soon as you have one breach that's the end of the whole your whole society and that just seems like a I can imagine that scenario but that's the kind of thing where I go back to base rates and just say when in all of human history has it really worked that way that one little mistake brings the entire system crashing down
1: let's let's talk about base rates now so let, let me give you a reason to think that kind of ai technology might radically change the world is actually kind of more consistent with, with the common sense outside view than than you might think so Actually, before that, you know, in 1800, imagine that someone had tried to offer a prediction of what the world in 2023 would look like. And then they described the world just as it looks today, you know, including it's common to fly around the world. We've got instant communication with anyone driven by these satellites that travel at 7,000 miles per hour. You can receive movies uh, into your hand
0: through the air. What's a movie if it's 1800? The- <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs>
1: it's a play. It's a play. Yeah. Um, we've got quantum computers. Uh, we've got the James Webb Space Telescope on the other side of the moon, taking us photos of the beginning of the universe. Uh, we've got automatons that do a lot of work like washing machines and dishwashers and, and, and robot factory workers do you think that in an 1800 Brian Kaplan would have said that most of those things were silly and unlikely because they were kind of they were excited fanciful ideas that kind of grabbed the human mind and but but that we should bet on the world being boring and fewer things changing than that
0: it's really hard to give uh, to give an honest answer but ultimately i think no because i would start by saying well these actually seem this is the early 1800s so we've got some primitive steam engines i believe already at that time and so I know there's birds, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, like, a, a lot of these things seem like they are, like, the, the, you know, the, the natural progression of, of the technology. I mean, like, things would have really surprised me if they were to say things like, all human beings get along in the future. It's like, what? Like, all, all human beings get along in the future. If they had said, like, you know, war will go down in frequency by 90%, that's where, like, oh, that's much more believable, Let's see. In terms of, you know, so and you know, this actually, a lot of my heuristic would be like, how many of these things are on the list of mythological magic that uh, human beings have been dreaming about for a long time? And I think I would go through and say, huh, the match doesn't seem to be that close. So there's flying. The flying is one where human beings have been mythologizing about flying for a long time, and so I'd say, hmm, people really want to believe in that. But on the other hand
1: there's there's like sending information invisibly through the air. There's like autonomous automatons uh that do stuff.
0: Yeah, so, so sending information invisibility through the air is not really something that actually human beings thought about from I don't I hard to me remember any stories of mythology things people think about are so like super strength of course, flight, invisibility, immortality, like regeneration. Regeneration's a big one like you get a wound and then the wound instantly heals. So I would say that these things, while marvelous, they're not the standard things that people have been dreaming about for a long time. So that would make me more think of, this isn't just some very culturally specific thing. This is actually, so, you know, so, so you know, this is the way that I would think technology would develop, which is it's not just we fulfill the dreams of people from 2,000 years ago, it's that we find there's some new things that we just didn't even think were possible when we do them. I don't think that I would be so incredulous, but maybe that's just self-delusion. Like just an incredible transformation. I mean, I mean, the, the global economy is a thousand times larger. I mean, if you were to, if you were just to say that, like, there's almost no hunger anymore. Now that has been a dream for a long time, and to say, well, we're going to get rid of hunger, and and although it's it's also one where let's see. So I guess we've only, I guess we've already got Malthus in 1800. So I like, would like to imagine that I would not have been sucked in by Malthus at the time, but <laughs> uh, maybe I would have because the argument's pretty convincing.
1: Okay, so th- the point I want to make is that there's a sense in which it's safe to bet on the world being boring, but I think over over a longer term, uh, one also has to be open to radical transformation because that's what we've seen multiple times in the in the past. We've just seen the, the order of things like even before humans, like radically overturned by by evolution, for example.
0: Yeah, I you mean, know, they also say that from 1800, hearing about the world of 2023, the thing that really would which totally make sense is all the technologies are designed to serve man by men for men. And so I'd say, that's not so, that's not so weird. And then someone would say, now, many of these have been used for evil purposes. And like, gee, well, that's not, no surprise at all. Of course. Yeah. You know, and honestly, like even in 1945, if you were to imagine someone saying, this is what our technology has brought us, death, it's like, all right, you like, you got a pretty good point, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, you, you couldn't have had the Holocaust without modern technology.
1: Yeah. So here's another reference class that I think suggests that we could see more radical change in, in coming decades than what, than what we've seen in, in the past. And I think you might be familiar with this from, from talking with, with Robin Hanson. But basically, if you zoom out from kind of our lifetimes or e- even, even the last hundred years, then what you see is a series of different kind of eras. Each one where economic growth and technological advancement is substantially faster than the previous one, and each one is shorter than the previous one uh, before you get to the next stage. So you have like, the, the pre-human era, like very slow, very slow improvement, and very long-lasting. Then you have human hunter-gatherers where they were increasing population very, very like slowly, but 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 faster than, faster than life was going before. And, and it's also very long, about a million years. Then you've got the farming era, 10,000 years or so, growth rates are like 10 times what they were before. Then you've got the industrial era, growth rates are about 10 times again. And also, as at least until now, it's only lasted maybe a few percent as, as long. From that very zoomed out point of view, I think it would not be that surprising to say, and then there'll be a future stage where economic growth is ten times higher again, uh, and we could get to that, you know, plausibly within the w- within the next century. How would that happen? You know, you could you could think about, you could speculate about various different options, but of course, having an industrial revolution for thought, for uh, you know, uh, for analysis of ideas, seems like a very natural one. How would you get much faster kind of effective population growth rate, or a much, or like a big increase in the effective labor input into the economy? Of course, having people on machines that you can manufacture on mass seems seems very natural. So, I think that's one that's one one outside view argument that makes me less skeptical of the idea that well, actually, maybe we could see substantially faster changes in future than what you know I'm familiar with in my lifetime so far. Yeah, what do you think of that kind of outside view projection?
0: A lot of this hinges upon considering that we're still in the industrial era, industrial era rather. And I would say that that's odd because it seems like we've been in this information era for thirty years. Basically, if you say that we're still in this era and, and the next one's coming, but in terms of the transformation of society from the information age, it seems like we've already had enormous changes. So maybe you're a little bit too young, but you like you kind of remember a little bit of the world before the internet. Yeah, I remember pre-internet a little bit. I remember really well and. If I were to be able to go back to my teenage self and then describe it, I would have just been stunned at the transformation and how much a difference technology has made. And yet we don't see much of this in economic growth rates. Now, I am someone that has been arguing that growth has been understated, but it's not understated by a factor of 10. I think that it's, you know, so I'm I'm very on board with the idea that true economic growth has been a percentage point greater than measured for. Say forty or even fifty years, and when you compound that, then things are actually understated by maybe a factor of two. So I'd say that the other one is I would just say that basing your prediction on like four inductions is pretty crazy. It is a lot like the Kondratiev wave theory of uh, of the economy, which uh, has kind of died out. But you know, there was a Russian economist who named Kondratiev who basically came up with like the seventy year wave cycle based upon like three observations. And you know there are people who say it's all true, but it just seems pretty pretty wacko to me. See, for something like this, I would—it's like a very tiny amount of evidence, but I wouldn't go and put much weight on it as it's happened. We we've seen three speed ups; a fourth one is coming. Uh, and again, I reference Pythagoras specifically because it is sort of a math mysticism.
1: Okay, so so let's take uh, the, the first argument first. So, so that is to say, isn't it a bit surprising that we've kind of already begun with information technology, and yet it doesn't seem like that's led to an increase in economic growth? I guess this, this outside view would just say, at some point, we'll come up with some sort of technology that would allow us to, to to boost economic growth a lot, and it could just be that you know the ones that we've had so far, they just haven't had that much punch because they don't effectively increase the population of labor going into the economy that much. They kind of augment humans, but it's all really bottlenecked on on humans very much. But at the point where we can can get machines that do most or all of the things that humans do then we can just get a massive increase in labor because it won't be bottlenecked by humans because or it never need be bottlenecked by humans because humans are not actually necessary for any uh, any specific task so we've like fully automated kind of the, the things that the human mind can do but i think even setting that aside even if it's it maybe a bit surprising that computers haven't led to more of a speed up i just don't think that that would convince me that there is no technology coming that could lead to a significant speed up even if it's not ai it could be something else right
0: Right. So, I mean, as soon as you start phrasing it in terms of none, you know, there's no technology that could, that's where I'll say, okay, you're right. Because we have added on enough grammatical modifiers to get to the level of tautology, pretty much. Well, Like, if you just say, well, imagine a technology where human beings are no longer a bottleneck at all, then couldn't we easily get massive growth? And I'll say, okay, yeah, because you basically have removed the key factor that (laughs) that slows things down, but... The question is could you ever really remove human beings as a bottleneck this is where i'll just say i could is again like it's a strong word but do i see human beings being removed as a bottleneck by 2035 or 2060 i'll say no even at minimum there is the bottleneck of humans controlling the legal system and just preventing technologies from being used because look there's so many ways the human beings bottleneck things and you know we, while we're on base rates there is the question, like, why is it that it takes so long, even for general purpose technologies, to really catch on and really start living up to their potential? It seemed like it took electricity about thirty years before it really started living up to its potential. So I believe the first phone calls placed in 1873. When is the first transatlantic phone call placed? True, a true phone call where you pick up a phone and call somebody. Uh, the 50s, right? Yeah. So it's 80 years between those two things, which boggles my mind. And like, how did Roosevelt talk to Churchill? And the answer was that they had a radio relay station in Newfoundland. So they were combining telephone and radio in order to go and get it. But basically until the 50s, the number of transatlantic phone calls being placed per day using this proto technology was, I think, like like under 100 per day, some, some crazy low number that was going on there. So it does give you an idea about how a technology that seems like it should be doing wonders. There's just so many issues, and again, especially when, like like there's most people know that there was a transatlantic telegraph cable, and so they figure the telephone cable would have to happen well, barely longer after than that. But that's just wrong. Right now, as to what's going on. I'm tempted to get Shakespearean and say, you know, human beings, we are this crooked timber. I don't think that's Shakespeare, but you (laughs) know, like human beings, like like in all of our flaws and our complexity, any time, like we are so intertwined with our technology to go and unravel us from it is nigh impossible. And while human beings do great things, we also are an incredible pile of sand thrown in the gears of every machine. And just to clean us off of that machine, like it's just too hard. So that's where I'm thinking that like we just see that even the most promising technology just take a really long time. And by the way, that we also like in terms of base rates, this is one that Robin really doesn't like, but just imagine the dawn of the domestication of animals and someone comes along and says, look, we've improved these animals a lot, right? Right. Can you imagine improving them so much? that They actually take over and get the upper hand. And I think at the very dawn of domestication, it would have been kind of dogmatic just to say, no, there's just no freaking way. Hmm. It's like, look, we turn wolves into dogs. Who's to say if we keep doing this for another 10,000 years what these beasts might turn into? But the whole time, the key point is that human beings are controlling this adaptation and making it. So we have done amazing things with dogs, but we have not bred the dog that turns on its master.
1: So turning to the, to the next argument, which is that, well, you've got like three or four different periods. Uh, I, I suppose actually you could probably extend it out to more if you're willing to extend the analogy to, uh, to earlier eras of evolution and so on and say so this increase in complexity.
0: Well, by the way, to be fair, in Robin's model, he has growth as a series of exponential nodes. And so his, he actually fits the math so that it's OK for there to be this intermediate period where it doesn't seem like the IT is doing much because he actually basically it's like a weighted average of which era you're in. So he doesn't require there to be a sudden transition. So he's got the math worked out. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of reverse engineered to work.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the thing I was going to say is just you, rather than do it as this like discrete series of eras, you could just say, if we zoom out and kind of fit a very simple model to things, then you would say that there's there's growth and there's increasing rates of growth. And, and I guess if you add many more parameters, then you start getting some more complex curve in there. Yeah. But, but the zoomed out picture is, yeah, growth and increasing rates of growth. Uh, and so if if I just if I want to say I'm, I'm going to make a really boring prediction about the future, I'm going to just like say that the trend of the past uh, million years is going to or the past 10 million years is going to continue. I would say in the future, there'll be growth and there'll be an increasing rate of growth uh, like it, if if you zoom out sufficiently. And so I think of that as the boring prediction in a way the the very straightforward base rate prediction. And that leads me to think that the, that the world well, in 100 years or 200 years time, there's a good probability that it will look like radically different. Uh, and it will be like quite shocking to me.
0: Right. Hmm. I mean, what's the the best way of thinking about that? I mean, one, I would just say that it seems like in the cutting edge countries of the world, we really have bumped into the opposite problem where it seems to be getting harder and harder to get any good new idea. I'm going to go and blame government for some of it, definitely. But still, there's some very good stuff from Charles Jones just showing it seems like the number of minds that you need working on a problem to get anywhere appears to have multiplied by like a factor of 10 over time. And he's just got a story of low-hanging fruit. It's just getting harder and harder to go and find great new things. Now, if you say, well, that's sort of like a short-run thing and eventually we will sort of break through and then there'll be a new area of low-hanging fruit, maybe. But like for example, it would not be surprising to me if a thousand years from now, we haven't figured out anything better than nuclear power for energy. It's an incredible technology. When you describe it, it's like my God, like you could go and like power a city with a baseball's worth of, of of fuel, and it hasn't taken over the world. It's like yeah, that's where the uh, broken timber of humanity comes in, where we can discover a true sci-fi technology, and yet we don't really make use of it. So you know, like this is where Tyler often says, you know, Brian, you claim to be so optimistic, but really you're very pessimistic. What I'll say is, look, I'm optimistic that something good's going to happen but I'm not optimistic about any particular good thing happening (laughs) because like, like there's just so many good things we can imagine and yet to go and put your hope in any one of them to me seems mistake. And you've got to just say, look, there's just thousands of things where good things can happen and it'll be great if we go and realize 10 of them. Yeah. And that's what I think actually has historically happened. Like there's a lot of things we haven't really improved at very much. I mean, most obviously we haven't even gotten that much better at making people happy actually. There's still a lot of people who have all the benefits of modern technology and they're still suicidal. And it's like, uh, and like including all of your uh, alleged antidepressants, which don't seem to actually work that well for a ton of people. Yeah, so
1: it seems like on, on R&D, it seems like, broadly speaking, you get logarithmic returns to, to throwing additional people at, at problems. Although I guess you do get a thing where sometimes new questions or new fields come up and then you get kind of rapid progress within those until, until things start leveling off again. I, I think that that is a useful reference class to have in mind that you could say, well, actually, over the last 50 years, things look a bit weak. Like We're not really seeing um, big increases in growth. Yeah, well,
0: there's an acceleration in global growth, but it's so easy to explain that as catch-up growth where backwards countries are just borrowing ideas that are totally solid.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think you can significantly explain this by the fact that we failed to take all of these surplus resources that we we're making and turn them into more people, basically. So, in fact, like population was a was a past driver of, of growth and increases in inputs into R and D, and that's that's really gone away uh, in, in recent times.
0: Although the total number of minds that are in R and D has skyrocketed, there is the question of is a PhD today the same as a PhD from 100 years ago? It's like yeah, a no. <laughs> yeah. PhDs from 100 years ago were pretty awesome, uh, at least in the real subjects, uh, whereas now PhDs can often be quite mediocre.
1: Yeah. So the the number of smart people uh, and educated people in in the world uh, working on that kind of stuff has definitely gone up since 1950, but it was increasing at a much bigger proportional rate before 1950, um, as when, when birth rates were much higher. Okay, so, so setting setting that aside for a minute, because we'll have, have to have to move on before too long. But another another um, angle I wanted to bring to you is, you know, it's possible that when we invented and broadly disseminated the printing press, that kind of the resulting upheaval in ideas and culture caused the European wars of religion that then... Yeah, in
0: fact, I think that's almost certain. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> More or less, yes. Um <laughs> the printing
0: press caused the wars of religion, not like... like-
1: it's really solid to me. It's a really solid claim, yeah. Uh, I mean, some some people have suggested that uh, radio was significant in allowing you know Soviet communism to exist and allowing it make it possible to brainwash people with, with particular ideas in a way that previously would have seemed impractical. So similar idea. Now, it seems like if we had some sort of war like that, uh, like period of instability like that today, the probability of it leading to a nuclear exchange that kills most people would have to be substantial, you know, more than 10%. Yeah, what do you think is the chance that all AI technologies taken together prompt a cultural ap- upheaval as significant as
0: did the printing press. Hmm. Here again, if we say we're like like uh, if we're adding on to what the internet did. So I'd say the internet has already created enormous upheavals and ones that are quite uh, quite unanticipated, and definitely not by me, but I don't remember anyone saying most of the stuff that we now see in front of us. And then the question is, like, like how much more will AI do? I mean, I tend to think that you know, again, like like as long as you're focused on human beings are the ones that really call the shots, we don't give actual autonomy to machines. Right? As long as we're doing that, then I don't think the marginal upheaval from AI is going to be very much in terms of telling an AI come up with an argument that'll make right wingers super angry today. You know, <laughs> whether they'll be that much better at at creating such arguments than regular humans are, I mean, like I don't know. I guess I can imagine it. I mean, I just I mean I think this is one where. You would have seen it already, actually. Like, I, I can't think of any time that AI has been used right now to come up with an argument that really gets the other side super angry, or even one that says, you know, one that will totally motivate my side. Like, yeah, I really want to have protests in the street tomorrow. What do I tell my people, AI? And the AI will say, you know, you got to use fewer verbs. <laughs> 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 you know, like like it seems like we would have seen it. I mean, like I again, I I wouldn't say be shocked by saying that we could get double the upheaval of the internet. To say it would be you know massive. Um, I mean, I mean, I think that there's always just some tail risk of massive upheavals without any change in technology too. In terms of like of, of multiplying it, that's you I know mean, I, I just don't think it's too much.
1: Yeah, let's let's say that you. Yeah, somehow you did know that it was going to turn out that AI technologies and aggregate did uh, cause an upheaval that was more the size of the printing press, which I guess would say is like probably a couple of times larger than the internet. In that case would you feel more 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 worried about how the future might go?
0: So I would still fall back on this idea that rich people just love life too much to die for much of anything. So I'm on board with Steve Pinker's enlightenment now story of of the pacification of the world. I've got a micro story where when life is cheap it's just much easier to get people to risk their lives when people have it good then they are cowardly i've got a whole story about the main reason for the world wars is that it does take a generation or so for rich people to get a new mindset so basically you have this brief intermediate period when they've got the technology of the modern world without the ethos of the modern world and that's what i think explains the world wars Uh, This also is a big part of the reason why I'm really hoping for rapid growth in the third world so they can quickly get through this last remaining period where they've got modern technology but pre-modern value of life. So I think once we can get almost everywhere in the world rich, then almost no one will be ready to die for much of anything, and then we'll be about as safe as we can get. Always remembering, though, this crooked timber of humanity, and someone could go and do a launch for reasons that don't make much sense to us, but they do it anyway, and they just blow up their civilization. I'm not a big fan of MAD as an absolute theory of there'll just never be a nuclear war, because I know how World War I started. And it's like, you idiots! (laughs) (laughs) We have three cousins on three thrones of Europe, and all right, so only two of them actually have much power, but still, they go and they, they blow up their world, and for what? Yeah, actually, that's, yeah, because of Serbian terrorism, as it turns out. Yes. As you uh, you may have heard, actually, it turns out that the the Austro-German theory that the Serbian terrorists that assassinated the Archduke were actually funded by Serbia is correct. So they were, it, it was state-sponsored terrorism. The Black Hands were not acting on their own. And once we see this, it's like, hey, like that list of ultimatums, the, you know, the, the ultimatums that, the, the, that were given to Serbia. Hmm. right yeah they should have just just agreed to everything and avoided world war one jerks (laughs) yeah okay i think let's let's wrap up the the ai section there obviously neither of us has really changed our minds all that much you got me thinking thinking, rob i mean i mean honestly the argument that really got me thinking the most is a couple weeks ago robin said look like you know human beings are not just gonna let themselves be replaced by machines and he said what about like a million years from now like jesus a million years (laughs) 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 Really? <laughs> like, like, like to go and say what the world will be like in a million years, or like, you got to be real cocky to go and talk about that. Mm. And I say, all right, yeah, like in a million years, Lord only knows who it's going to be going on. Yeah. I mean, I think that there will be
1: competitive pressures that encourage companies and governments and countries, like in as much as AI models acting with greater autonomy are more productive. They can make more money. They can make decisions faster. There are competitive pressures that will drive people to delegate more and more influence and more and more decision-making to AIs just because it'll be way more profitable.
0: There's autonomy and there's pseudo-autonomy. And I think you can get almost all the benefits of autonomy with pseudo-autonomy. Yeah.
1: So then the question becomes... um, I guess, yeah. Will you have people giving uh, very bad instructions to, to to model, or like very harmful instructions to models that are really powerful? And then there's always this question of misalignment, which which I've kind of bracketed today because that gets into like tricky technical issues where I feel, you know, someone for, who works on technical ML would be better to, to talk to you about that. Uh, it's, it's maybe the most slippery to do in words. But yeah, either way, I, I've listened to a lot of stuff uh, that you've talked to, said about AI, and I feel like I actually understand uh, your 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 views better. I have a better sense of your model now after that. So I think that was uh, that was useful. All right. Pushing on, yeah. Your most recent book is a collection of essays about politics and political irrationality titled Voters as Mad Scientists. What do you think is something important to understand about politics that the audience of this show, or maybe me, yeah, even in particular, I'm most likely to be getting wrong?
0: Hmm. Yeah, good question. Let's see. So, I mean, like you've got a great audience. You've got a great audience out there. I mean, I think probably a lot of it is saying, well, sure, people are rational sometimes, but the system basically works. And I think that this is mostly based upon status quo bias and just being very accepting of the world as it is rather than having actual EA standards that are external to it where you are really doing an actual honest-to-goodness evaluation. Right? So I was just doing a debate on capitalism and socialism, and what was striking is the other guy, a you know, very reasonable philosophy professor, Scott Sihon, and whenever I talked about big bad things that governments do He would say, sure, governments make some mistakes. And I said, look, I'm not saying they make some mistakes. I'm saying the main things they do are terrible. It's a very different point. So he was basically a huge fan of Sweden. To him, it's basically the best country that's ever existed. At least darn close. And, And I said, right. Well, your beloved country, Sweden, guess what? In the 60s, 70s, 80s, they did an incredibly fast switch to nuclear power. They were on track to be getting relying upon nuclear power almost entirely. And then, based upon the Three Mile Island accident in Fukushima, they moved very rapidly in the opposite direction. He's like, well, like, even the Swedes, like, I'm not saying they made a mistake. I'm saying they had in a fantastic uh, system, and they just went and trashed it and this is democracy. It's not just a, you know, some isolated mistakes. It's having something that is a great idea and either refusing it, or really Sweden did better than other countries because they first went with the, with the great idea, but then they even more inexcusably halted the great idea and reversed it and tried to go and decommission all their nuclear plants. Yeah, That actually looks like they won't go quite that far, but still. So that's the way that I would think about understanding voter rationality is not just on the margins it's not just a few random things it's basic functions of government things that everybody almost everyone just takes for granted like another one this one is great for eas right almost every country i think really every rich country spends considerably more on universal redistribution than on means tested redistribution hmm. from an ea perspective this is just insanity like, just imagine what EA's would say about a billionaire who says I have eight billion dollars to give away. Here's my plan: one dollar to each person on Earth. <laughs> and it's like, all right, there are worse things you could do, like you give eight billion dollars to a terrorist group or something. <laughs> but it's about as dumb of a helpful thing as you could do. It's like target your resources to where they do the most good. And yet, almost every gov- every re- first world government, anyway, they spend a lot more on universal redistribution where the intellectual case is pretty simple. It comes down to why take money from everyone to give to everyone? Why not instead focus on the biggest problems and just say most people just don't need help and can take care of themselves? And then the the, the defenses of this. Even social scientists are so pathetic. (laughs) It's pathetic just in the sense of they hardly even exist. If you just go to Google Scholar and try to find all the defenses – of the way that got, that first world government spend trillions of dollars every year you've got like 20 articles like and that's it it's like 20 articles to justify spending trillions of dollars <laughs> every year like you know, like and what are the defenses well there's one of the only way to redistribute is to do it universally because otherwise people are vote too selfishly and you have to basically trick them into thinking that they're benefiting even though of course on net they are not which is an awfully specific theory of human error <laughs> okay, I think
1: let, let's let, let's just, let's just pause them back up for a second because I think there'll be lots of people in the audience who, while, while very sharp, uh, are not aware of your 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 broad take on like how on voter behavior and, and where they go wrong. So yeah, can you lay out the key simple argument for rational irrationality on the part of voters that you lay out in the myth of the rational voter?
0: Yeah, very good. It Comes down to this: imagine that you go to the grocery store and you just start throwing objects in at random and buy them. All right, what happens? Well, you waste a pile of your own money on a bunch of stuff you don't actually want. Right. Or imagine even more strongly, what if you just go in there and you just buy a bunch of stuff that you're supposed to want? So you go just go and put in a whole bunch of rice cakes or whatever, whatever whatever stuff is allegedly super healthy and then you buy it. And what's happened? Yeah. You just have a bunch of stuff that you don't even want to eat because it sounds good, but in fact, it's disgusting and you can't stand it. Right? And yet, and when you make decisions on, on this basis, you are the one that suffers. It is your money that is wasted, which doesn't mean that no one will ever do it. We've all per- made purchases that afterwards were like, man, that was kind of dumb. Why did I buy that thing? And yet it is quite abnormal for you to go fill your cart with a bunch of total junk that you don't even want and then get home and say, why did this happen to me? On the other hand, if you go and vote randomly or go and vote for a bunch of stuff that just sounds good, even though it doesn't work very well in practice, what happens to you? And the answer is the same thing that would have happened to you if you were the most diligent, thoughtful voter in the world and voted on that basis, because you're just one person. You're just one person out of millions or tens of millions or even 100 million voters. So effectively, you have no influence on the outcome, which means that you really can safely go and vote randomly, or you could very safely go and vote for what sounds good rather than what actually works well. All right. Now, many people say, well, why would I vote randomly? Yeah, probably it's going to be more of you'll vote emotionally. You'll vote based upon what sounds good. You'll vote based upon ideology. Uh, if you were to go and say, I'm going to go and figure out what job to do based on philosophy, it's like, yeah, your philosophy is not going to be very helpful for figuring out these questions. Uh, but if you're going to go and vote based on a philosophy, that's actually quite normal right? uh, for people to go and, and do it in that way. Uh, Now, I'm actually, we're in the middle of a new book where I think that I really am taking the argument from the myth of the rational voter. I'm giving it a lot more psychological structure, and I think that I'm really happy with how it's coming out. And this is where I build very heavily on the idea of social desirability bias. Uh, It's basically very simple. It's a common sense idea with a fancy name. It just says, when the truth is ugly, people lie. And when the lies become ubiquitous enough, people often just even forget that they're lying. They lose consciousness of it because no one's ever even challenging them and i say this is really the general theory of democracy is that what rules policy is just what sounds good not what is good because everyone or like virtually everyone really is voting based purely upon the most superficial appearances and even curiosity about what's what the real effects of policies are is so low
1: so as a consumer when you're trying to decide what car to buy, you have a big selfish personal reason to do your best, look for evidence like and make a good decision. As a voter, if you're deciding who to vote for, you have virtually no incentive to put in enormous amount of time and effort and energy to figure out who objectively is going to lead to the outcomes that you want because the probability of you affecting the outcome is negligible
0: right And also just to calm down because when you're buying cars, you're like what's the coolest car? What's well, like a Ferrari? Then why do you have a Ferrari? Because I don't want to give up everything else in my entire life. Have a Ferrari.
1: Yeah. So, so I think of this kind of stylized fact that voters they're not given sufficiently good incentives to do the extremely hard work of trying to figure out what's the best thing to vote for. I think of that as the key reason that democracy falls short of what we would ideally like. Is there any evidence that we can point to to say like, yeah, yes, it's not one of these other complaints. Like this is the key. This is the key thing that's driving the problems.
0: I think the very best and most Experimental evidence is just from betting. Just when you go and ask people making extravagant political claims, would you like to go and bet on that? At what odds? And you will just see that people's confidence suddenly plummets and often they just run away entirely from what they're saying. Hmm. So I think this is the very best case where we actually can in real time change people's incentives from this consequence-free world of political the political discussion normally is in to one where you've got to be precise and where there's definite right and wrong answer and there's stakes in the line. And then you really will see that the way that people start – it's not just that they – the way they talk changes. The way they think changes. It's not the, uh, like – like I'm not I, – I don't have telepathy, but the idea that when people are really angry about, about politics that they are lying like just normally seems fanciful to me. If someone is saying, look, no one will want to ever come back to Texas again if we don't change our abortion law. Like when they're saying that, it's like they sure seem sincere. And it's like, well, how about we go and bet on what happens to migration into Texas? Uh, I'll give you 101 odds that, the, po- that the, the migrant population is greater than zero next year. And it's like, uh, So some of them <laughs> are like, okay, fine. Okay, some people. Okay, well, that's pretty different from all. <laughs> no one will come. All right, and they're like, how, okay, fine. I'll give you 10 to 1 odds on there being a 50% decline. And it's like, all right, and this is where I think you actually, if you just are looking their faces, you can see the telltale signs of a person finally, for the first time in their lives, facing facts, thinking about what they're really saying and whether it's actually true. So I think that is the best way of doing it. I have this long-running argument with Tyler Cowen, who has lost a couple of public bets to me and also suspiciously maintains that bets don't prove a damn thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well we need we need to know the the temporal sequencing of those maybe to yes, yes. To, to, to judge
0: um, yeah it's kind of suspicious to me but <laughs> i've stopped arguing about it because he seems to get kind of agitated about it uh out of character but I mean, for him he'll just say well whatever your portfolio is that shows what you believe and they'll saying like what all right so well, here's my portfolio tell me what i believe
1: you mean what, what investments you hold?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And, it, and it's, it's, it's like, like, isn't even tr- is it even true that Trump and Biden voters have different stocks they're holding or a different mixture anyway of what stocks they're holding? Yeah. You say it's all values. There's, there's no factual disagreements or seems like there's factual disagreements. And I would just say, look, portfolio is just a really vague description of what you think is going to happen. It's true if you own stock, it means you probably don't think the world will end in a year. But other than that,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it is this remarkable stylized fact that you could imagine a world where you know people talk a big talk about politics. They have really strong opinions. They say these kind of extravagant things, and then when you try to bet them on it, they actually they, they really believe it, uh, and and they and they actually are constantly losing money to people who are who are betting uh, betting with them on yeah, this. Yeah, I
0: mean, like, like I'd be so rich. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. But it's so, but it's so fascinating that that basically never happens because as soon as you put real stakes on the table, almost everyone realizes that they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and like, and thank God, I suppose. Uh, I mean, this this has happened to me as well. I, obviously, when you get start getting into loose talk, you get passionate about things. And then someone's like, all right, let's make a concrete prediction and a concrete bet, put money on it. I'm like,
0: uh, okay. <laughs> need to be more careful. Yeah, I mean, there's several variations. Sometimes it turns out that the person just is using words in a weird way. Like someone was predicting that if immigration continues into Europe, there'll be a civil war in 20 years. And I said, okay, so how about if like 10,000 people get killed, we'll count that. And he's like, no, 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 the civil war is already happening because an immigrant killed someone in Toulouse last week. (laughs) I'm like, okay, so basically you just use the word civil war in a totally idiosyncratic way to go and confuse people. Uh, So maybe we don't disagree then. Yeah, I think immigrants will kill people if you let them in because there's a lot of immigrants and there's a greater than zero murder rate.
1: So given that voters face such weak, selfish reasons to to
0: vote really prudently and wisely, why aren't things worse? Yeah, great question. I think so part of it is that there is actually, in addition to issue-based voting, where you vote based upon the policies that politicians favor, there's also what's generally called retrospective voting, where people go and vote just based upon is the world collapsing or not? Do we have peace? Do we have prosperity? Now, the real optimists say then we can just disregard all people's stupid policy views because all that politicians get judged on is economic performance and peace. And I say, no, that's 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 grossly over overly optimistic. Is basically the way that retrospective voting works is that if you if things get a lot worse than they were before the election, that's what you lose from. Hmm. And even there, it seems like it's mostly just. A big fall in the three months before the election, Larry Bartels has some good stuff on this, and that means that while on the one hand, it does stay the hand of people that will just drive their civilization off the cliff, on the other hand, it means that there's still almost no political pressure for improving things in obvious ways, such as deregulating nuclear power. In fact, this is one where if there's stories in the news about there's a nuclear accident, it's the kind of thing that's likely to lead to immediate action to go and crush nuclear power even when no one died. It's way safer <laughs> than stuff that we allow that we've allowed for hundreds of years, like coal. So why is it that you are having this ridiculous reaction? And yet a politician that wants to stay in office does not just go on the news and say, look, nuclear is the safest kind of energy. We've already regulated it way too much. I'm not going to go and add one more regulation on no way, line of the sand. That's crazy. That person's gonna lose, of course. Yeah, I mean, the best you can do is we'll just add on a few more token regulations. But to go and deregulate something that is unpopular, where the gains would not be obvious for a really long time, that's the kind of thing where I just don't see the system has much tendency at all to go and get things right. I'll be that way. like, it does stay the hand of someone that wants to just lead to get immediate disaster. So in Venezuela, you do need to switch to a dictatorship after you, ter- you know, if you just tra- turn your country into a hellhole. But on the other hand, you know, if you're in a hellhole and people don't remember a time when you weren't, it's pretty darn hard to get out of the hellhole. It's like, look, you didn't get to be worse of a hellhole, so we <laughs> helped.
1: yeah. Um, okay, so, so the stylized thing here is that voters are biased in a big way to vote for things that
0: sound good on a very superficial level.
1: Yeah, is there is there any way that that voter tendency uh, and they kind of the, the low effort that they put into deciding how to vote can be turned towards good. Like maybe given that the most important work in politics is to find policies that are actually truly good on the merits and then find ways of framing them that sound good and noble to someone who isn't paying that much attention.
0: That sounds great. It's just so hard. Basically, it would just require this amazing coincidence where the, where the ideas that are really great are actually susceptible to being sold in this way. In competition with other with people who can go and take any idea and find out of all, uh, basically just imagine is this a competition means someone who has a constraint to find good ideas and then sell them effectively in uh, to you know, like in a, you know, to people that are very superficial versus someone that doesn't have that constraint and can pick any idea at all, and then that person to say what is the most saleable idea. Great, I'll sell that one, and then you're in competition with the guy who is constrained. It's got to be good before I can sell it. It does. It makes sense that the person that has no constraints on what they're willing to sell wins. Now, in terms of what sounds good, on the one end, I think a lot of this is very is very much a human universal. So things like you know, like like think of the children. I think that's a human universal for pretty obvious reasons, or even things like education is wonderful, but. Then there are things that vary a lot, like if you are in the Middle East, going and crushing the Jews sounds good, all right. but it doesn't sound good in other countries. So you know, th- so there are these variations, but if you you, know, if you just imagine trying to go to the Middle East and say, I'm going to figure out a way that will sound really good to them of making lasting peace with Israel, and it's like, my God, what are you going to say? It's like, uh, don't worry, Allah will punish them for all eternity. You don't want to go and interfere with that by making them suffer in this life. Yeah, good luck with that. It's not going to sell.
1: I I mean, I think this framing on it does suggest something that relatively few people do, which is to say, I think most people start with a thing that they're passionate about, and then they try to find a way maybe to to pitch the policy that they want. This is just saying, let's look across all of the underrated policies, policies that are better than people appreciate, and think, which of these is the most saleable in a way that hasn't been exploited yet? Uh, And I guess I've I've never tried actively doing that. Um, I mean, it
0: is a great EA mission. Yeah, I don't mean to discourage people from doing their best. I just want people to have realistic expectations that you're that there's a reason why good stuff hasn't won yet. And that's that it's probably less saleable. Just the idea of we should consider the cost of doing something doesn't sound good. So if you realize that, if you realize that you're gonna be against a demagogue on the other side saying, when it's something as important as our children, cost is the last thing we should think about. <laughs> Gee, like, you know, like, how am I gonna beat that guy?
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, so so we've got a couple more minutes, so I'll leave the final two questions to to the audience. Someone, someone sent in this question for you. If humanity at some point is able to reach and make use of other planets or asteroids, how should those resources be allocated? And, and what if suddenly it's easy to get to them and so many people could race to them roughly simultaneously? It's not that there's only one company, say, that could, that could reach them. How, how should they be split up?
0: I mean, I'd say that realistically, the very best system we've ever had is... Finders keepers, whoever gets there first gets it. There's been some really interesting research on in countries where they have better mineral rights for for, uh, for the people that find them first. I totally don't remember where I heard this, but it makes too much sense to not be true. <laughs> it's truthy anyway. Uh, those countries appear to just have a lot more resources. <laughs> like, hmm, all right, is this a coincidence? Or I think it is more of when it's finders keepers, there's just a lot more energy that goes into finding them. And you can also see this in the in archaeology. The golden age of archaeology was in the finder's keepers era. Hmm. And once it was set up that whatever you find, you have to hand it over to the governments of that country with basically 100% tax rate normally. That has been the, like a, a horrible blow to archaeology. And we really just don't, it seems very likely there's tons of finds that are still out there, but you can no longer fund them in a for-profit manner as you could in the past. So I say the same thing would make the most sense to me for the case of exploring space it's true economically it is wasteful if there is a technology that's very widely available i mean and you could say and just to make, really stack the deck imagine that the cost of speed is quadratic in your speed or something like that and so you wind up burn it you could wind up burning up all the resources in the race and then it just winds up being futile I would just say that that is so unrealistic. It's just not a good thing to think about. And remember, even if it's true for some close resources, it's not going to be true for far resources. And it's just better if there is not wiggle room on this. So if the finder's keepers rule is the best that that human beings come up with, again, realistically, there's got to be something better than that. It's very easy to go and come up with a model that's so. But in practical terms, finder's keepers, I'm all on board with that, number one.
1: That, that makes sense from, from an economic point of view. The, the thing that would trouble me most about that is that I think it would, it's not so much that it would motivate racing, but that it would motivate violent conflict. That if, if you know, if, if you can grab something, then you get to keep it, then that motivates people basically in order to, to, to fight one another.
0: I would say normally motivate, it demotivates fighting because finders keepers, there's the keepers part, right? I was there first, so it's mine and no one can go and take it from me. And the legal system has to recognize that.
1: I, I guess I think, I, I don't, well, I think that what that would devolve into is people trying to forcibly displace other people in order to grab these resources yes and so I think probably the 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 safer bet would be to have some kind of divvying up of resources in proportion to people's kind of military power that might be the thing that's least likely to generate violent conflict over it I mean you do see that there's kind of spoils of, of controlling government within a country and often they are split kind of along these lines in proportion to uh like the, the, basically the ability to do violence of different different interest groups
0: well we've got two cases where we did something pretty close to that one is Antarctica and the other one is space and I would say both of those show it's a bad idea. And yes, divvying up territory to governments based upon military prowess basically just means that you give each government a big pile of stuff they don't do anything with.
1: Hmm. hmm. I have to I have to think about that one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so there there was this age, this age of imperialism where governments seemed highly motivated by the sheer thrill of coloring in the map. That's over. And like I don't I, I will say I'm not it's a little confusing as to why that is so, but it does seem like Governments just said, "Look, like, we just do like like no one can own space, no one can own Antarctica." And then, and, and like there's like zones, but you know, so it's not quite what you're saying. But I think it is pretty much handing it out to based on military prowess. It's you know, not quite because like Norway has a bunch of Antarctica because they're 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 cold weather explorers.
1: What what about what about the the model, the two step model, where you have like governments get their allocation and then they privatize it, they just sell it off and then use that to fund government services.
0: Sounds great, but that's just not the way that things have worked for over 100 years. So if you've seen a map of the U.S., a third of our land is just owned by the federal state governments. They just have not been privatizing much of anything since the homestead era, really. Uh, there is this popular view of the government only owns land that nobody wants. That is wrong. <laughs> if, you, if you go and take a look at Texas, so, if you've, so you have to drive around a lot of Texas because a big state. There are enormous areas that appear to be complete wastelands in Texas, and yet, because it was settled under the old rules, there's almost no government land in Texas. So if you, if you ever drive from like Amarillo to San Antonio, uh, which I have done, almost all that is private land and someone wants to own it. And you might look at it and say like, God knows why they want it, <laughs> but you know they're they're like. They're, they're, but then it's like there are. Th- all, there's always option value. Maybe it'll be useful. But they are developing it, so they're building. You know they're building new cities there. They're building a lot of it is, is oil drilling. But like once something is owned by somebody, the amount of creativity of what could I do with this thing, which seems totally useless, turns out to be quite high. Yeah, but as long as it's owned by government, then there's not even really much reason to ask those questions. They're just like the people in charge of it. Like we just preserve it as is, useless to humanity.
1: Okay, um, another audience one that will make the the final question is: um, you you homeschool all your children? I think uh, do you have four now? Uh, only four. Only four. Yeah. Isn't there a huge opportunity cost for you in that? Like you know you could be spending that time to do research or writing or, or, or just having fun because you'd think you know you're not specialized in teaching young children. So given given that huge time cost. Should listeners seriously consider homeschooling their kids or or not?
0: Yeah, the actual story is, so I was doing just my older sons, and then during COVID, I did all four, and then uh, there was a negative opportunity cost during COVID. Right. Because it was either that or monitor them doing Zoom school or whatever. So (laughs) I found it easier to do it myself than to monitor. And then uh, after kids started going back to school in person, then my older sons were in college. The younger ones, we gave them a choice. One wanted to stay in regular school, one came back. In terms of the opportunity cost... It is much lower than most people would think because of the system that I have, which basically consists in, I put in a modest upfront investment in just the curriculum. That might be 20 hours for a year or something like that, or probably less once I'm doing it uh, repeatedly. And then every day they've got a schedule. And then every day, most of the time I've, uh, I've scheduled it so they're working on their own. And then I budget a certain amount of time where it's feedback where we go over it, but it's not interrupting my day normally. Basically, normally I've got somewhere between 20 minutes and 90 minutes where I am going over and helping my kids with the work, but it's not like a constant interruption by any means Hmm. Uh, in terms of why I did it. Uh, So I am definitely not an effective altruist with respect to my kids. I care about them a lot more than strangers. I do a lot more for them than than, than I do for strangers from all the older sons. It really came down to, they were just really unhappy in regular school. And I knew from some past trial periods that I could go and just give them a much better life. Hmm. Now, since I love them, it doesn't feel like work. It's just a lot more, it's just really enjoyable. And my older sons are the kinds of students that you pray to get as a teacher. It's students who are really engaged, really curious, so for them, you know, like it, was, it was almost all a pure joy. The only downside of homeschooling my older sons was really the college application process where they were whining and bellyaching a lot about how stupid it was. And I said, <laughs> I agree, but I can't change it. Why are, you, why are you complaining to me? Like, yes, I know these essays are stupid. I know the system is, is, is a giant farce, but <laughs> like, I'm not the person that should hear about these complaints. So like, all I'm, I, My job is just to tell you how to game this crummy system. You
1: should be proud of them, Brian. they are going to be fantastic bloggers one day.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, for my younger kids, uh, during COVID, they were—they you know, were not thrilled to be there. It was—it was our best option, but that was a very different experience and a lot more draining for COVID. I just said the story. Well, this is better than do uh, better than Zoom school, where I'm leaning over to have someone incompetent teach them. So, I better just better for me to just do it myself. Also uh, so that was reason. And now for, you know, right now I'm just doing my younger son, you know, he is a great kid, but he's not like his brothers. He's not that interested in doing this stuff. He's here because it's better than the alternative, yeah. which is not as much fun. Um, again, like why do I do this for him? And mostly just to give him a better childhood. Uh, you know, like, and you know, I, I love him and I like his company. Like a lot of what I get is I take him on most of my trips. And so like, like by myself, I'm just terribly lonely. And this way I go and we get to travel the world together. So that's fun. He really wanted to study Japanese and I've been wanting to go to Japan for a long time. And my wife just has zero interest in Japan. So now I've got, not only would I not want to go by myself, but now I've got this great excuse of, well, I like guess part of his Japanese education and take him to Japan. <laughs> right? So I mean, I took him there almost as soon as Japan opened to foreigners, we went and I'm taking him again in December. And actually, I'm plotting to go and take him at least once a year, every year, all through high school. So I, which is super fun for me. And, but you know, he's the one that makes it. So
1: I've really thought of homeschooling as a junket, but, uh, but I suppose when you have a conflict within the family, it can, it can potentially make sense. How, how much time do the kids save? Cause like a typical school day is seven hours, right? Do, do they actually spend seven hours doing schoolwork or do they manage to do the same
0: in a lot less time? It's not a lot less time. So with my older kids, they're so motivated that they didn't want that much free time. In fact, they would just go and do their own academic interests in what was nominally free time. Uh, With my younger son, I'd say that's probably about two-thirds of a normal school day, all all things considered. Obviously, we cut out so much administration and so on. But basically, like like this year, we're just doing three things. We do, you know, we're doing math. He's doing algebra two. I'm prepping him for AP microeconomics, and he's doing Japanese. So we about two thirds of the time that is totally dedicated to these three subjects, where he is you know ma- making very good progress and getting good. And you know, like with one, you know, especially with one kid, like, like the positives. We don't move on until you're good. Yeah. Right. This is not one where we have covered the material, even though you don't know it. and Now it's time to move to the next subject. Like if we don't understand it, we just keep working on it until you got it. Also, you know, come you know, double back. Make sure you still remember this stuff because I'm not, you know, I always say, look, I'm not teaching you so you can do well on a test. I'm, I'm only teaching material that is worth knowing. And if you forget it the day after the test, then I've, then we both failed.
1: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, a kid at, at at a normal school only gets twenty minutes on average of like of teacher time. So uh, I suppose you know they, they're probably getting a massively better education from from have from an hour or two of you. It'd be interesting to see what you know in five years' time when my when my first kid uh, hopefully is uh, of school age, how good the the large language models will be at at substituting for teachers. I mean, it seems like they're they're already quite educational, but they, they need a lot of fine tuning in order to be able to do the wider range of educational things that a teacher does.
0: Yeah, they've got that like explain it to a second grader function uh, on on, uh, on gbt so i would say that i actually go and pay at least double probably more like three or four times the zoom cost for japanese tutoring so my son can get in-person tutoring hmm. and partly i just think that he that he is going to learn better and just partly i don't i want him to go and have time with other people besides me i want him to and i don't consider zoom to be just psychologically the same a lot of people feel the same way yeah yeah you know, i remember uh, like during covid you went and we had a couple lunches with you rob yeah we did yeah yeah but it, but they resume lunches but it's just not the same as having real rob
1: <laughs> I've, got, I've got i've got to come visit sometime
0: yeah yeah totally totally like uh, i want to meet i want to meet the baby yeah you got to bring the baby rob <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, that'd be wonderful. Uh, my guest today has been Brian Kaplan. Uh, thanks so much for coming back on the Eighty Thousand Health Podcast,
0: Brian. My pleasure. And the new book is uh, Voters of Mad Scientists. You can get that on Amazon for 12 bucks, ebook for 99. You've also got everything else that I've written there, and I got my substack, which is bet on it. So please check it out. Wonderful. Chat again soon. Great talking to you, buddy.
1: I just wanted to remind you all of something that we've discussed before, but not in a couple of years, which is that we let guests look over the questions we're going to ask them ahead of time and take out any that they don't like. And we also let them look over transcripts of interviews uh, and take out anything they they don't like from the recorded interview. Kieran and I explained why it is that we do that in an interview from February 2022 uh, on our other show, ADK After Hours, which is titled Rob and Kieran on the philosophy of the 80,000 Hours podcast. This approach has various benefits as uh, as well as, as some costs. On the one hand, it means guests can cut questions where they don't have much to say ahead of time, uh, and we can avoid questions that the guest is just going to dodge and not answer uh, in a forthcoming way even if we do ask it to them. It also means we can cut out anything where the guest misspoke um, and is worried that they might be misunderstood uh, by, by listeners. It also means that we're able to interview people who otherwise would be just unwilling to do an interview flat out because they're anxious about doing interviews or they'll regard being put on the spot as as too risky. And in fact, I think we've we've found that it makes guests much more relaxed and potentially more candid in what they say because they know that they can think about what they want to keep and cut from the recording at leisure uh, after the fact rather than just being committed to whatever happens to come out of their mouths. On the other hand, it means that we can't make a guest address a topic that they don't want to talk about, or ask them hard-hitting questions that they're unwilling to face, or put them on the spot in a way that would be telling for the audience. Fortunately, there are plenty of other outlets that take the more traditional approach to interviews, which is why we see our collaborative process as a way that we can do something different and get out information that a more adversarial approach uh, wouldn't be able to uncover. While we can't get people to say things they don't want to say, we at least can get sophisticated coverage of whatever it is they are willing to discuss, uh, which I think in many ways is often the best that you can do. If you want to hear more about how we think about this one, go check out Rob and Kieran on the philosophy of the 80,000 Hours podcast over on the ADK After Hours feed. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing by Simon Monsour and Milo Maguire. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together, as always, by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.